Well, hello and welcome to episode number 400! I am Carlos, and in this week's show, Matt's worst nightmare, more single-aisle airliners are to go across the Atlantic. The first Airbus A380 gets a hydrogen engine, and Swissair covers its planes in sharkskin. Uh, we talked to some of our listeners that have made the trek here to Brooklands, and also in the important military section this week, Al's favourite... Five sailors are disciplined for leaking the F-35 crash video. We look at what's not going on in the Ukraine, and a couple U.S. Army helicopters hit the slopes in Utah, but no one was injured. And finally, we have two great live interviews on the show this week uh, with Neil Cluffley and Peter Collings as well. And joining me this week here at the Brooklands Museum, as always, pushing all the sliders, the knobs, the buttons, the wires, the cables, and looking stunning as always in his headphones, <laughs> not parasite or parasailing or skydiving. It's Matt Smith. Yeah, that's never going to happen. I don't, I don't, yeah, the, the, there was talk of a whip round earlier. Uh, no. <laughs> that crowdfunding is still going on. No, it's I? really not. No. no. <laughs> well, so, this is very weird, isn't it? Because we're all in the same room. I mean, when I was know. the last time that happened? A scary thing, isn't it? I know. Um, oh, hello. And, I know. Uh, it, but you've done an awesome job of putting things together, Matt. Along with well, uh, I can Nev. say it's more 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 never on that <laughs> one. <yeah>. And also <laughs> sitting to my right, it's the king of tech and AV, and he definitely is the king of cable management. I it's know. Neville Bounds. Yes, we got a seven out of ten for our cable management t- uh, today. I'm uh, chalking that up as a win. <laughs> Just uh, don't so. lift up this cover yeah, at the no. front of the Shh, table. No, 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 um, no. Yes, peering but, behind uh, the lens. Yeah, great to be on the show, and great to see everybody again. Thanks very much indeed for coming. Yeah, it's good to see everyone here. And uh, joining us as well to make up our team on the show for the 400th, he's flown in all the way from the US of A. It is, of course, our resident pilot, Armando. Hello, Carlos. It's nice to see your face in person. Although we did just see each other, what? Two months ago. Yeah, two months ago or something (laughs) like that. Yes, I will point out before you even get to who's in the audience or in the chat room, Half the room came in from America, so just saying. Yes. (laughs) Well done, everyone. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry, was that Pip yelling USA? He's a resident of Columbus, anyways. uh, But we've got some uh, some, uh, housework to tidy up at the beginning of the show, and I've got uh, I've been given this envelope here with um, something to to uh, to give to Matt. Uh, so I'm going to hand this over to Matt here. We've got uh, an envelope for you to open first, along with a special gift. So I'll give that over to Matt now to, uh, to open. I don't like... Surprises are not my, <laughs> are not my Do you remember thing. the last time you opened an envelope like that on a yeah, live show? Yeah, I know. I had a car. Yes. <laughs> Have I got a new car? Oh, sweet. No. no. <laughs> Tickets for skydiving. Right. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where's this? Uh, okay, this is really terrible radio, by the way. Am I supposed to read this? Is well, you, you can read it if you like, okay. if, it's, if it's family-friendly. Right, I don't know. Matt, uh, sorry I don't have the necessary funds to help with your skydiving. Closed is some essential training material for you to get started uh, in the meantime. Congratulations to you and the rest of the crew for reaching an incredible 400 shows. I'm sure I speak for all the listeners and long-suffering chat room inmates... 
that's nice, uh, in saying that the show is still going from strength to strength uh, with a stream of brilliant guests, two of which we've got with us today, which I'm very excited about. Thanks again, Richard. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Oh, and, what, and what's the what's the gift? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've just seen that bit. That's all I need to know to see what. <laughs> I, do you know? I think it's. I might be. I think it might be that that DVD, mightn't it? Which not one? not one Which from your one? personal collection. I should stress. <laughs> I mean, <more. laughs> uh, family show. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Ah, yes. It's the Airplane DVD, because I haven't seen it yet. He hasn't with seen it. Nelson and all that kind of thing. Thank you very much. That'll, that'll be fun. <laughs> okay. just, rem- just remember, Matt, it's a documentary, not a film. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank oh. you. Okay, right. That was unexpected. What, I know. What's next? <laughs> I know. We're, we've got surprises everywhere. Well. Um, and in the audience as well. And as uh, with our audience, obviously, we're going to say a big thanks, obviously, to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room uh, on the live show today. Loads of people in the, uh, the chat room. We gave a quick mention uh, to Jan, who obviously couldn't make it today uh, in the chat room. And we've got uh, Dr. Steph, why are you in the chat room? Honestly, we've got Laura Davis in there as well. Tanya, hello to Tanya W. Mash is in there as well in the chat room. Uh, Dirk, hello to you, Dirk, as well. Alan White. Uh, Tony Smith, uh, he loved the opening video, by the way, Matt, Tony did. Oh, right. Oh, uh, Tony good. Smith, yeah, he loved the opening video. And just go, Miles High, hello to you, Miles High. Uh, I think, yes, that's about, I'll scroll up to the top in case I've missed anyone. No? We'll look out at the audience. I'll look at the audience, yeah. And uh, we're going to say, well, we'll some, well, some special members who have flown in uh, this week to join us here at Brooklands. And hello to Auntie Liz. Yeah, I know, that was a big Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yes, and uh, also, obviously, Captain Jeff has also joined us today. Yes, good. Well, thank you for <laughs> flying in. <laughs> come on, come on. Big up, Jeff. Captain Jeff, keeping it awkward since 1917. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Steph, as always, she, uh, she couldn't fly here, so she fl- ran here today. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Steph. Actually, She'll be running back to the US tomorrow. Funny story. <laughs> she was actually running through the airport to make it here. I did hear that, yeah. <laughs> How was that connection in JFK? Tight. Yeah. Okay. That's what she said. Tight is good. Yeah. And on that note, Don't Captain it. Al, hello to you, Captain Al. Lovely to see you. Good afternoon. Hooray. <laughs> and uh, also joining us from the A320 podcast, it's Matt. Hello to you, Matt. And also from the Plane Safety Podcast, he's there on his phone, looking busy. It's Pilot Nick. <laughs> he's, in the, he's in the chat room. That's he's what in the chat room. He's in the, he's chat, in the chat room. room. He's moderating for us. And hello to you, Jenny. Lovely to see you. All the way from Rome. Good to see you here as well. And also our resident military photographer extraordinaire, Jonathan Warner. There he is. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thanks to everyone for, for coming today. It's great to see so many of you here uh, at the Brooklyn's Museum. I'm sure you've all had a look around and stuff and, uh, and seen Concord uh, Park just outside. But um, we've, got, we've got loads of stuff to get through on the show, haven't we? We do. It's a packed this show. Week. Yeah, packed show this week. So if everyone is ready, shall we, uh, shall we do some commercial news, man? Yeah, let's do it, shall we? Here we go. Captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. 
And kicking off this week's first news story, this one is coming to us from simpleflying.com and businessinsider.com. So a few weeks back, we talked about a new concept for business travel called Access uh, that featured a walkthrough area between two seats, allowing unrestricted access to the aisle. Uh, now, this week, uh, Henning Greiser, American Airlines head of international network planning, said uh, that the type would likely be used on secondary markets to Europe, which is obviously... Ha- made Matt very happy because he loves single-aisle aircraft flying to the US. No comment. Uh, While helping to run year-round flights, he was speaking at uh, Roots Americas in San Antonio and said the type would help increase Americans' penetration in Europe, family show, (laughs) especially where it is weak or has no presence of its own. And American has 50 orders for the glorious Airbus A321XLR extra long range, with the first set to arrive late in 2023. Uh, The type will be the first actual 757-200ER replacement, uh, so more more so than the A321LR. So while Airbus touts a range of up to 4,700 nautical miles, uh, the real-world range of the aircraft will be notably lower than what is proposed, especially with US-bound winter headwinds and, depending on Americans' configuration, a rough range of up to and around 4,600 miles is likely. So Greiser said the type will be part of its North Atlantic network in summer 2024, but he hopes to use it before then because of the XLR's range. It will probably be used from Philadelphia, JFK and Boston with Central Europe sighted uh, Greiser commented. So the 321 XLR will be uh, will open up markets that he said wouldn't be able to serve, be served otherwise. Uh, new cities and niche destinations that will really work well with the network. Uh, so between 2018 and 2020, American added multiple new routes, including Philadelphia uh, to Bologna, Budapest, Berlin, Dubrovnik, Lisbon and Prague. Others such as Philadelphia, Casablanca and Chicago to Budapest and Prague and Krakow were due to begin in 2020, but didn't for no, some apparent reason. As the XLR will have few, uh, fewer seats uh, to fill versus a wide body, it will theoretically open up more markets. However, it will have a higher seat mile cost uh, than the twin aisle equivalent, uh, requiring a higher average fare but far few passengers to break even. Moreover, the XLR will have significantly lower sector costs than a wide body, helping to reduce overall costs and risks of new routes. So, Amanda, you're, you're coming back to the UK in May. In May, yeah. yeah and you're that's, flying that's that with... New, uh, that new airline, new Play. Airline. Yeah, is that right. a single aisle? I, I believe so. I think yeah. it's an A321 um, through Reykjavik. It's Baltimore to Reykjavik, Reykjavik to Stansted. Which is great, right? Because I'm going to East Anglia, so I don't have to go to Heathrow. But that will actually be my first time going across the ocean in a single-aisle airplane. Um, I don't know. From a passenger experience, does it really make a difference? Probably not. I mean, I I could wade in on that one, but I probably won't. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Right? That's why we said it's your worst nightmare. Yeah, I I just don't don't like the the, the 757, but apparently I'm in the minority. (laughs) Well, so for this one, we've identified uh, somebody that's much more qualified. Yes. <laughs> Captain really? Jeff. Captain Jeff. Right? Probably done more tr- transatlantic, right? I um, was just Captain looking for the toilet. I was following the signs outside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're doing here. Uh, yeah, it's been a while since I've flown um, over the Atlantic. Um, just seems like way too long of a flight to me. I fly nice short little flights. <laughs> 
Um, but I don't know. I, I was going to ask Matt. Um, do you? Uh, I know how you feel about single aisle aircraft, uh, especially transatlantic. Mm. Uh, is there a difference in your mind uh, having the two aisles? Is just is it just the perception of the space that uh, two aisle aircraft have that make you feel more comfortable with that type of a configuration? Yeah, do you know? Yeah, I hadn't really th- I hadn't really thought of it like that actually. I, I suppose. I, I mean, I, my, my, you know, I don't know anywhere near enough about aircraft as perhaps I should do for being on something like that. I don't either. Right no. <laughs> um, but actually, no. I mean, that, yeah, I must admit that didn't enter into my head the fact that the, the fact that it was no different. I suppose because I'm so used to flying, all the flying that I had done before was like little hops to Ireland or or basically, you know, to Europe. So basically, you know, the the seven three sevens and and that kind of thing. So to be honest with you, when I was doing that trip, I didn't really think any differently if you like it was just an airplane that happened to be taking me to my destination i didn't immediately think oh this is not a two-aisle aircraft i mean when you when you do go on and you think wow this is much bigger um but again it it didn't really enter into my head that that was the the reason why that you know that it would have any you know i wasn't thinking oh has this guy is this going to be big enough to get us over the ocean for example you you assume that that's already been worked out (laughs) i actually have a a question for you captain jeff so Let's say, let's say you were at Acme, you were on the A320 or something. They said they, they were going to start flying them overseas. Is there any special training as a pilot? Is there any, do you know, do you care if you're, are you identified as a domestic pilot? It, let's say they started taking the, the 717 yeah. to Bermuda oh. or something. Yeah. Well, in that case, I don't know that, that would classify as any kind of overwater training requirement. I guess Bermuda would. Uh, but uh, yeah, you have to learn about uh, ETOPS, extended range operations on sing- or twin-engine airplanes. Uh, that's something that we're not trained in for aircraft such as iFly uh, domestically. So, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to it that uh, we don't have to really know anything about unless we're flying that kind of operation. So, yeah, you would yeah. have to. If, if you were at American Airlines as a pilot, I guess perhaps as a young pilot, you would say, oh, hey, I'm on the A320. Uh, maybe they'll put me on the XLR and start going overseas or something like that. Huh? Yeah, as a young pilot, I would love to do that. I'm an old pilot now. Yeah. Not the oldest, but <laughs> <laughs> one of the oldest in, in this yeah. room. And uh, yeah, I've, I've had this discussion with a lot of people, and the kind of flying that I do, I really love because it keeps me within the you know one-hour time zone difference from my home time zone. And I just flew over from the U.S., and uh, just the five-hour time differences i can feel it it's yeah. uh, mm-hmm. something that as you get to be an older person uh, it really does affect your more experienced yeah, more experienced yes <laughs> of course but uh yeah as far as the um the twin aisle uh single aisle kind of configuration argument for overseas flying to me it seems that the biggest impact that a, a dual aisle uh versus single aisle aircraft uh, the difference would be in uh, boarding and deplaning. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be where it, it makes the big difference. But once you're you know, on your way in flight, I can't see that having more than one aisle is going to make, uh, make that much of a difference. But I could be wrong. Is it, uh, yeah. is it something you ever get used to? I mean, I know I've, I've sort of like obviously some friends of ours are like cabin crew, and we were talking about this ironically at, at breakfast. I mean, is, is that jet lag thing something that a pilot ever gets used to? I don't know. We should ask this guy right yeah. here in front of me. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Right. right. Oh. <laughs> 
thanks for that. Yeah, like, thanks, thanks for that in-depth analysis. Uh, <laughs> New call sign for Nick. <laughs> speed break. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, what? Am I getting paid for this? No, am of course I, am you're I not. Am I getting paid for this? <laughs> absolutely. Oh, well, uh, my, yeah. my answer stands. Then. <laughs> but actually, we've got we've got Pip Nick now. Obviously, so Pip, with with your operation, it is. Um, you're, you're much more on what I call on call. Is that is that fair to say? I mean, do you have that like the, the jet lag thing? That must be genuinely something that you have to factor in, like in terms of exhaustion and things like that. Well, not so much jet lag. I don't, you know, personally get much outside Europe, so within a few time zones. But uh, yeah. fatigue is another issue, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to, you know, think about that. We have flight time duty limitations, which in theory protect us somewhat. Mm. Um, but you know everyone's got their own threshold yeah true, true. Cool. well I'll let you guys know how it goes in, in May when I come over on an <laughs> <Ooh>. A320 <laughs> ooh are you upgrading on the way home to what to the economy, economy class <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I, on this airline I think the only thing I can upgrade to is the jump seat and that's pretty uncomfortable so. <laughs> yeah. that's true I, I did come over on um, wow wow they had what seven? Five, no, they had A three twenties, right? They were A three twenties, yeah. So we did that trip a couple of years ago. I, I don't know. I couldn't feel any difference. Well, we'll see you in May. Yeah, hopefully. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> uh, story number two, Matt. You oh, okay. have uh, got uh, one of the all important green stories this week. Okie dokie. Right. Yes. Uh, so this is from the AviationWeekly.org, and the headline is Airbus to use A three. 80 MSN1 as a hydrogen fuel demonstrator. So Airbus has confirmed previous rumours that it will be testing hydrogen propulsion using the world's biggest passenger jet, the A380. The aerospace uh, firm confirmed its intention at a recent press conference. The A380 will be fitted with a hydrogen engine developed by CFM International, a collaboration between uh, Safran and General Electric. Uh, the ad- uh, these are being adapted from a current generation CFM engine that is converted to run on hydrogen. According to the partners, Safran and GE have... uh, It's... Oh, good. I do love it. We've got a password on here and it keeps locking every time. (laughs) (laughs) I think the kick is up. We could probably take the password off by now. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, they have millions of hours uh, of hydrogen experience between them, making them ideal partners for the project. Airbus has set its sights on developing hydrogen propulsion aircraft by 2035 under its Zero E project. While others peg their hopes are for CO2 emission reduction on SAF and electric, Airbus has wholeheartedly thrown its hat in the ring for hydrogen. Airbus's very first A380 to roll off the production line, MSN01. That sounds like a Microsoft product. That's, that's, that's worrying. Uh, is the airframe to have the honour of testing its groundbreaking technology since it was commissioned in April 2005. The original A380 has remained with Airbus as a flying testbed and continues to operate regular test flights for Airbus from Toulouse. Now, while many A380 operators are consigning their aircraft to the uh, canals of history, this particular bird will have an important role to play in the development of future aviation technology. Uh, the Airbus uh, 
the Airbus have been saying. The A380 MSN1 is an excellent flight laboratory platform for new hydrogen technologies. It's a safe and reliable platform that is highly versatile to test a wide range of zero emission technologies. In addition, the platform can control comfortably uh, accommodate the large flight test uh, instrumentation that will be needed to analyze the performance of the hydrogen in the hydrogen propulsion system. The Super Jumbo has a huge capacity inside the aircraft, more than suitable for the four hydrogen tanks Airbus intends to store in its cabin. These four tanks will be built and delivered by Airbus uh, to zero emission development centers, one in Bremen, Germany, and the other in uh, Nats in France uh, as well as from Madrid. They'll also be installed near the rear of the aircraft in a lengthways position. So Matt, uh, I'll, uh, I'll save you here. So there's you. some media here because when I originally saw this story, I was thinking, oh man, they're going to hang a couple or, you know, four hydrogen powered engines off an A380, not a tremendously great test bed airplane. But then I saw the picture, which is, oh, they're just going to put it on like a wart on the side. Um, which I think, I think uh, Boeing does this with their 747. They'll just take like one engine off and add their test engine on there. But I thought this was, was a little bit interesting setup here um, with the hydrogen tanks on the inside. But it still has its regular engines. They're just going to use it as a test bed. So, um, but we have an interesting uh, live chat room member in the audience that has actually been on this aircraft, right, Micah? This story is, is near and dear to my heart for a lot of different reasons, including the fact you would mentioned the uh, 747 with the extra engine. Honeywell flies a 757 that we've probably all seen with an extra engine almost right on its nose uh, as a test bed engine that is really fabulous. But yeah, uh, I've been on this particular aircraft uh, with Brian when I was here in the UK last time in Farnborough 2016. Um, and uh, there's a picture of me someplace, I don't know if you probably had a chance of sitting in the, uh, on the right seat. Um, the story is also near and dear to my heart because I think any aircraft, especially an Airbus that's being powered by gas, should be piloted by Captain Al. Um, but that's <laughs> another story. Uh, <laughs> but what, what fascinates me about this is um, they say it's... Oh, nope, that's not... That, that was uh, in the 787 on the way over here. But that's <laughs> that, that wasn't gas-powered. That was just me that you... <laughs> um, they say it's sustainable, um, and I, I have a real hard time dealing with sustainable aviation in general, or the concept of it, because the hydrogen, yes, that burns will be sustainable. The only emissions is water vapor. The hydrogen that we get um, that is being used as the fuel usually is scraped from natural gas. So you're using methane to create hydrogen. Now, you can create hydrogen through electrolysis, through electricity, uh, which is fine, but the electricity is coming from oil or coal or natural gas. Um, so uh, the sustainability of it, there may be less pollution in the air as it's flying, but you're moving um, the, the pollution from one place to another. Uh, Isaac Newton had a law, I believe it was one of his first laws, and it said there's no free lunch. Um, <laughs> and, and that's basically what this is. You, you can change energy from form to form, but you're never going to um, convert it in, in terms of where the energy is coming from. It's got to come someplace. Yeah. Uh, so it's fascinating to see it happen. Um, I, I know I'm going to get letters, um, and uh, <laughs> that would be to, uh, I, uh, what is 
I am really, I am really offended at yahoo.com. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> Or you could just send it over to APG.com. Yeah, that's what we normally yeah. do. Yeah. I'm offended at APG. Yeah, I'm a, yeah. Liz hasn't got enough to do. You see that? <laughs> so, Nev, you've got the next story, and um, it's all about membership plans, which you, are, you love, don't you? With we the, do like that, yes. Uh, and it's on the uh, travelawaits.com website. It says, Alaska Airlines is breaking ground with a new program allowing passengers to enroll in a subscription-based travel offering for West Coast destinations. Flight Pass will pay a set monthly fee that allows them to fly up to 24 round trips uh, per year to destinations in California, Arizona, and Nevada. Plans start as low as $49 per month for the service that allows participants to lock in main cabin deals for a full year. Uh, Alex Corey, Managing Director of Business Development and Products for Alaska Airlines, said in a statement, Flight Pass builds on our mission to offer travellers the most West Coast destinations at the best value. Our commitment to care means offering convenient and affordable options that fit our guests' lifestyle and connect them to where they want to go. The programme applies to any flights to or from 16 cities in California, Nevada and Arizona that Alaska serves. After two years of staying close to home, guests are ready to travel again and with 100 daily flights from 16 airports throughout California and between California to Reno, Phoenix and Las Vegas, Flight Pass will take them there, Corey said. Uh, this is how it works. Subscriptions, uh, sorry, subscribers can choose between two annual plans. The regular plan starts at $49 per month and requires booking at least 14 days before travel. Flight Pass Plus, Pass, sorry, Flight Pass Plus starts at $199 per month and allows for bookings up to two hours before departure. Uh, subscribers will get credits deposited into their accounts on a monthly or bi-monthly basis and they will continue to be eligible to earn miles as part of the Alaska Frequent Flyer program. Flight Pass could prove popular for customers who make frequent trips to Las Vegas or Disneyland or for those wanting to go on golf getaways to Arizona or Palm Springs. Uh, Alaska Airlines is uniquely positioned to help our West Coast guests experience more with direct flight access to destinations near and far from our expanding hubs, says Neil Thwaites, Regional Vice President of California for Alaska Airlines. Flight Pass will provide more options, value and care with every trip that our guests book, whilst all trans also transforming the travel experience long term. Well, of course, now people are starting to fly again, then uh, they're looking for better value and what they can do to top up their points. Mm. So these sorts of things are quite interesting, especially for the, you know, the West Coast and, and Northwest Coast, I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know that, that I've ever heard of as a subscription service for, for flying. I'm sure somebody in the audience probably has, but there was a, an article in Forbes that uh, was kind of na a naysayer or a skeptic of, of this subscription plan program. Basically, they said that the only people that we're going to take advantage of this is uh, because it's select cities. It's not, you know, Alaska Airlines is based in Seattle, and that is not one of the cities that it is uh, introducing its subscription service for. It's like Las Vegas to, to California or something like that. So it basically said if you're a golfer and you go to the same place a couple times a month, or if you just like to get away to Las Vegas you know, every two months, lose all your money and, and know that you've already paid for the tickets well, ahead of time? Vegas, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and then the Forbes article went on to kind of say, well, this is great, but 
United Airlines is watching this and um, Delta is watching this and all the other Southwest Airlines, right? That's their home territory, Southwest. And they're just going to adjust their prices to, to match Alaska's, you know, competitive pricing on this. So I don't know. There's, a, there's already some articles online that are saying this is never going to work. It's, uh, it'll last a year, then Alaska will change it. But I couldn't think of anybody else that flies more in this room other than the pilots in the room uh, than Steph. So, Steph, would you ever be part of a subscription service like this? Or what, what would it need to be to be attractive yeah, to you? I will preface this by saying I am very wary of subscription services. Um, <laughs> she doesn't even have Netflix. I do have Netflix. That's, that's one of the few subscription services I have. It sounds, um, you know, when you're describing it, um, actually the first thing that came to mind were some of the timeshare things that people buy into, um, which tend to... Um, it could work for a very select few people, I think, who always want to go to the same place or the same few places on a relatively frequent basis. Um, I know you already kind of mentioned that about this this model um, when you were going through the story. Um, but unless you are traveling to the same place multiple times a month, probably, and need to have very flexible plans, it's probably not for you. Um, I don't think it would work for me. I travel a lot, but and my plans need to be very flexible, but it's never to the same place, or it's very infrequently to the same place. Um, and the, you know, when you, when you start to get invested with one particular airline, so this might work well for some folks flying who only fly with Alaska Airlines, um, and if they're in those particular markets. Um, but then you start to really work on the status game, which I think Nev knows a little mm -hmm. bit about. Um, and there's some very specific ways that you will try to maximize um, how you're earning your miles and your points for the dollars that you're spending. And I don't think this is, the uh, subscription model would be very conducive to that. Yeah. I kind of agree with, with Steph on this one. If, if I lived in California, I would just, I don't know that I would want to pay up front. I would just watch, you know, kayak.com or, or kiwi.com and see what, who the cheapest. If you're already flying low cost, might as well fly low cost. So, so I don't know. We'll see in about a year how this turns out for Alaska Airlines. Anyway. Let's talk about sharks. Talk about sharks, yeah. yeah. Armando, you've got this uh, next one all about shark skin. Yeah, so this one's from newsatlas.com. Uh, shark skin-inspired film immediately drops airliner fuel consumption. So zero emissions airliners are still a long way off, but Lufthansa and BASF are developing a way to improve things for the time being. So this, this program is called AeroShark. It's an adhesive riblet film that... <laughs> easy, Al. <laughs> uh, that immediately reduces... <laughs> fuel consumption, and therefore the emissions from any aircraft. So millions of years of evolution have moved the ocean's most feared predators away from perfectly smooth skin. Uh, instead, sharks have these uh, slightly ribbed skin, which reduces drag through the water enough to become an advantage. So what works in hydrodynamics often translates well to aerodynamics, which is funny because that's what one of my flight instructors used to say. It's like, air is just water. It's just a fluid, right? Um, oh, my goodness. Your the password, password again. It looks <laughs> Carlos, take the password off of this thing. <laughs> you want to pick up there? Look, Carlos? it's been going far too smoothly. I'm really yeah. pleased that something is not doing what it should because it, it's, all, it's all a little bit too relaxed, if I'm right. honest. Yeah, <laughs> right? So the resulting film doesn't sound like a radical difference, but the millions of prism-shaped riblets... That's like McDonald's little McRibs. Have you ever had them? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this, the uh, AeroShark film surface is no more than 50 micrometers high, but that is enough to make a difference in fuel consumption. 
And International Airlines Swiss has calculated that if 10,225 square feet of this film is applied to a Boeing 777 in specific patterns and aligned with the airflow around the fuselage and the, the engine to sell, it immediately reduces drag and uh, fuel consumption by 1.1%. Um, so Swiss Air is sticking AeroShark on all 12 of its Boeing 777s, a move that it says will save 4,800 tons of fuel per year, reducing CO2 emissions by some 15,200 tons in the process. And Lufthansa had previously announced that it will roll out uh, this shark skin on its entire cargo fleet, as well as a further Boeing uh, 10 777s. That's, for Lufthansa, that's 3,700 tons of jet fuel savings and 11,700 tons of CO2 emissions per year. So according to the team, it's easy to apply. It's uh, extremely resilient to UV radiation, water, oil, and large temperature and pressure shifts. Um, and it's already been tested with more than 1,500 flight hours on a Boeing 747-400, a modification that was certified by EASA. So for this one, we identified Captain Al as our resident yes. uh, aerodynamics and hydrodynamics expert and riblets expert. <laughs> Probably know more about ribs than I do aerodynamics. But the first thing I'd say is that you know, yeah. Boeing's need all the aerodynamic help that they, they can get, you know, you know, so anything that they can do to, to help, you know, make those, those sheds fly a little bit better is going to be helpful. Um, looking at the bigger picture, I think for those of us who've flown in the general aviation world, we'll know that in the summer, with all of those bugs that you splatter on the leading edge, That's a good point. We, we know that if we wipe those off, uh, we can make our airplane fly more efficiently, so why shouldn't the same strategy apply to larger aircraft? And there is no doubt that there's lots of technology going on, and this is potentially one that could be a breakthrough. Only time will tell. But if it's as simple as, as you've described, then, um, you know, if the cost isn't prohibited, then it, there will be a huge take-up on it. Um, just to go back to a story earlier on so that we can actually delay and obliterate the military <laughs> section. Great. I get to make eye contact with Al while he's sabotaging me. <laughs> hey, actually, that's a great point. Look behind you. Oh, I know so exactly who's my, behind me. My train killer is right behind you. Yeah. It'll be like the Oscars. We're going to play you off with the music here in about 30 but, but seconds. What I was going to say really relates to the, the hydrogen story earlier, and it equally applies to this. It's not really so much about what the savings are or the advancements, it's the PR side from it. So I don't know how it is in the US, but certainly here in the UK, there's this whole revolution about electric vehicles, you know, and there's, there's Teslas everywhere in every car park now. But the electricity that's, you know, charging those up is being derived from gas, oil, and currently at the moment due to the fuel situation, and coal. So in, in some ways, as a bigger picture, we're taking a, a step backwards just to, to have this perceived perception of everybody doing the right thing for the planet. Um, and it, it's, it's really just about, about selling that because people don't tend to dig deep into the, the technology of this. They just want to know that they're doing the right thing. And I think from an airline point of view, um, because airlines are now very, very aware of their, their, their carbon footprint, and a lot of airlines, and you'll see this in the low-cost airlines, are very keen to fly new aircraft with fuel-saving engines. And 
anybody who's flown the, the A321neo and compares that with a CO will see that the significant levels of fuel saving for carrying the same mm -hmm. amount of people. And when you look at the big corporate bodies now, ever increasingly those travel departments are not so much at cost, they're looking at what is our carbon exposure. So let's, you know, take this airline because their carbon footprint, they're flying new generation aircraft. Okay, it might cost us more or it might be less convenient, but, you know, as a large corporate entity, we're, we're, we're you know, are being judged by our shareholders on our... Uh, ethical travel, if you like. So I think any moves that we make in, in trying to, e even if it's just sort of kind of like the emperor's new clothes uh, that the industry does, I think that the, the uptake and the acceptance will be really quite considerable. Yeah. yeah, no, I can totally see that, especially since we just did a story about single-aisle aircraft going across the ocean, right? So the cost per seat mile on that aircraft is going to be significantly more than, than a, a more effective airplane that's designed to, to go transcontinental. So... Yeah, it's a good point now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole single aisle thing, just to go back to delay the military even further, it's a little bit of a misnomer, actually. Jonathan Warner, that's your cue. Yeah, because <laughs> if you sat on a single airline, single aisle aircraft in a super comfortable armchair with as much leg room as you can have, it doesn't make any difference yeah. that there's one aisle. It's just the density of seating on, on those aircraft. And actually, to be honest... We used to fly at Monarch 757 across the Atlantic all the time in full single class 235 mm -hmm. configuration, and people are actually interested in how much it costs. Yeah. And if you can travel across the Atlantic significantly cheaper single aisle with your family going to Disney, <laughs> then you will do so. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, having just come across the pond in, in business class, I would have been equally uncomfortable had it been a single-aisle aircraft. <laughs> it was terribly miserable, even though it was business class. It was the best seat in the house. Yeah. And it was cramped and awful and terrible. Single aisle, double aisle, doesn't make any difference. Matt would have hated it. Yeah. So, so what nobody in the audience knows is actually we're recording all of this, and it's actually a focus group for all the airlines. And we're going to play this back. We, we, uh, uh, Neil Cloughley is actually just the first CEO that we're meeting with, uh, you know, with his revolutionary aircraft. But we're actually just going to meet with all the airline CEOs. And present. I actually think that the quality of the seat is irrelevant. It's down to the quality of the brandy. If the brandy is good enough, you don't care about the seat. Yeah. Amen to that. And, and, and because the airlines listen to this show, Micah, you've just been downgraded to cargo hold on the way down <laughs> to the US. I don't know, might be more comfortable. <laughs> no. Awesome. Thanks. So, time to speak to our first special guest, isn't it? So, our first special guest on the show is giving us a little talk uh, about uh, the subject he's here to talk about. And uh, about seven years ago, I took my first solo flight at Beckles. And the chap who was on the RT at that time talking to me uh, whilst I was flying around above Beckles in the Cessna 150 uh, was our guest. And here is our guest. Give him a warm round of applause. It's Peter Collings. Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Lovely. Right. Um, Gunu, oh lovely, thank you very much. First of all, I just want to thank the guys for um, inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here today. I'm going to speak to you about engine uh, boroscope inspection, a little bit of background about engines themselves. I appreciate there's lots of people here who really know their stuff when it comes to aircraft and engines, so be kind on me, please. Um, so, 
Where's my slide gone? That's a nice picture of me. I have my hair cut. It's very good. There we go. Um, so I'll try and whiz through this, be quite, uh, quite fast, really. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what I do, what I get up to. I've got a few little practical things here which will be coming around for you to have a look at. Um, but don't take Carlos's RB to 11 blade because I promised he could have it. Um, right, moving on. Come on, Mr. Button. I'll try that one. There we go. First of all, a little bit of background about aero engines themselves. Um, <clears throat> you can go back right to AD, 50 AD. Uh, we've got Heron of Alexandria, the steam-powered early pile, Isaac Newton, a lot of names here. 1687, we heard laws of motion mentioned. Franz Stoltz, the gas turbine, of course, Frank Whittle, Hans von Ohain, the Gloucester E28, 39, around about the World War II time, big developments. But they're all kind of focusing at this, really. What is the most efficient and effective way of getting propulsion? And this is relevant to what I do, okay? Propellers had reached their limits. They were hitting the speed of sound, okay? So we had this real problem. So the jet engine, it was inevitable. The Rolls-Royce Conway was the first production low bypass turbofan. So um, later on, we had Rolls-Royce and other manufacturers, the RB211, with high bypass. In other words, most of the air using to propel the aircraft rather than going straight down the, the center. The RB211, the engine that simultaneously sank and saved Rolls-Royce, a place I used to work many moons ago. But the thing is, for these guys, um, all these people, they sought better propulsion, better efficiency for fuel and the environment, better longevity in terms of wear and tear, and better reliability and safety. And that all contributes to us being able to fly faster, longer, higher, cleaner, and safer. And all of whatever we need to do traveling around the world uh, for us to be able to have um, uh, enjoy flight effectively, whether it be something that we use for our work, to see family members, and so on and so forth. So just a very whistle-stop tour of the engine. I know some people know this already, okay? Modern engines, talking about the gas turbine, they're much more efficient and powerful and have much less wear than piston engines. One of the primary reasons for that is, well, bearings. Everything is on bearings. And these things, certainly N2, turning at around about 10,000 RPM. Most engines are uh, dual or triple spool. So on a Rolls-Royce engine, you've got N1, N2, N3. On other engines, you might have N1, N2. Okay, come back to that. And you get wear on the blade tips as well. They do actually come into contact. This is a CFM 56 first stage blade. Okay, and yes, you do, these do come into contact, especially during a compressor stall. The blades will actually hit each other. Okay, and when you do a boroscope, we're looking for a, a tip curl on one blade which has struck the other. They will bend and hit each other. When you um, have a look at these, by all means, if you want to take them and pass them around. Um, there's another one. <laughs> He's keeping it. Here you go. Here you go. Um, so you get the idea. Um, and the air enters the inlet. So you've got the fan here, but the inlet is here. Okay. Uh, and this is important. Uh, the fan's producing 80% of the thrust. Um, 
It's compressed by the LPC low pressure compressor and high pressure compressor. It gets to about 400 degrees there alone. It's pretty hot already. Goes along, mixed with fuel and ignited in the combustor, 1700 degrees. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Bypass. Um, the high, yeah, following the theme from earlier. The high pressure hot gases, they go to the HPT, high pressure turbine, and that's what turns the high pressure compressor, which brings the air in in the first place. Very special high pressure turbine and nozzle guide vanes because the temperatures that they are at, this is a nozzle guide vane, guides the air into the HPT. Have a look, pass round. Some damage on there for you to enjoy. They're about 25,000 pound each new just for one segment. Um, that's worthless as it is in that state. Um, just thought I'd add that before it goes on eBay. Um, it goes through at about 10,000 RPM-ish. Then that goes on, that compressed um, exhaust air goes to the LPT, and that's so critically important, the low-pressure turbine, because it turns the fan. And the limits on the LPT are tiny in terms of damage you're allowed to accept. Okay, your fan is 80% of the thrust, the core, the rest of the engine, 20%. Okay, and then we've got gearbox uh, for accessories, uh, driving electrics, electric power, hydraulics and other systems, bleed air taken from the HPC for your cabin air, for starting the other engine if you want to do cross-bleed start, and there's uh, other bits and pieces. So all of this needs inspecting by uh, me. Um, I travel worldwide, customers will raise a, a work order which normally links in to a, um, a task card and an AMM aircraft maintenance manual or other maintenance manual task that needs to be completed. There are uh, regular inspections that follow a schedule and uh, there are repeat inspections as well, perhaps for a known defect, a crack on a blade, something that needs to be monitored. Some things are allowed to continue, they're perfectly safe. The manufacturers have tested these blades massively. They know how any damage will progress, but safety is so key here, okay? Service bulletins where we discover something that needs to be developed or changed. Um, Pre-purchase, so somebody, for example, next week I might be off to France, somebody wants to buy an aircraft, they want to see that those engines, you know, the most important valuable parts of the, the aircraft, the engines, the, the undercarriage, okay, they want to know those engines are good. They want a full front-to-back inspection, both engines. And of course that location can be anywhere, it can be outside in Siberia, it can be in Dubai, it can be in... Liverpool, anywhere in the world, okay? We've then got AOG, aircraft on the ground, 24-7, phone call and you're off. Oil leak, there's an oil smell in the cabin. Bird strike, does happen, okay? Um, high vibrations, compressor stall. And of course we've got the maintenance, the different checks that take part, A being something that could be maybe done overnight and C and D being a substantial amount of time stripping the paint back. Okay, um, so how do I do it then? Um, there's a boroscope. Uh, boroscope's like an endoscope used by a doctor. Um, it's um, basically a camera, a long probe. The probe can be three or four meters long. The one I use is a six millimeter probe. You can get a four millimeter probe, which you would use on something like a business jet or for carrying out a service bulletin, where perhaps you've got to go down and look at the bearings. You can articulate the tip and there are different tips that can go on there. Some of them are 90 degree tips, some of them are straight tips, and so on. Could go into much more detail there. 
And what I have to do is I have to put the boroscope into the engine in various inspection ports and locations. And sometimes you've, you know, in something like a Trent 800, you've actually got to sit at the back of the uh, intake and uh, turn the IPC blades. When you've got N1, N2, N3, one of those sections probably doesn't have a gearbox. So turning it, it can be an issue. Okay? And I have to inspect all of these blades. It's carrot factory. Okay? There's a lot of work. So human factors is key. You can't be overtired doing this because you'll miss something. Okay? Important that you've got to be alert. The boroscope goes into inspection ports. We look at the low pressure compressor, the booster. The limits are very small on this. 0.045 inches, for example. Okay? A scratch can be unserviceable on the root of a blade. A scratch. Okay, you get a piece of paper, put a little nick in it, pull it, it's going to tear. I'm not saying this is an exact thing, but imagine a double-decker bus sitting on a blade. There is huge force on these blades, so we're not allowed to have too many defects. More complex part is the combustion chamber because you've got to do a 360 of that through the inspection port. Okay. Uh, back in the day, how would we have inspected an engine? you'd have to take it to bits. That's the only way of doing it. You'd have to take it to pieces. This was expensive, time-consuming. Later, we had the rigid boroscopes. Anyone who's used a rigid boroscope, you get real bad neck ache because you just sat like this the whole time. It goes in, but you can't move it around. You can't articulate it. Later on, the flexible boroscope came in, and um, we had just opened a new doorway, really. And of course, with engines, uh, we touched a little bit on more modern engines, things like the CFM Leap, the Neo, and so on. With the, the, this a whole idea of being able to almost 3D print parts means they've got smaller, the combustion chamber taps, twin axial premix swirler. It's tiny, but the limits are very small on it as well. Okay, more efficient, less nitrous oxide. Um, Dealing with the defects when you come across them, that's perfectly serviceable, okay? That is serviceable. It's surprising what is serviceable and what's not. Something like that can be serviceable, but a tiny little nick on one of the blades that's going around um, can be uh, unserviceable. Uh, blend repair here, this is a repair. Blades can be repaired. If you find a defect, it is possible to repair it little milling tool, a borer blender. So on wing, somebody can drill off until you've got a smooth surface in accordance with the maintenance manual to be able to get that nice and smooth. So it is possible to repair some things uh, as well. Uh, so in terms of what would happen, we'd produce a, a Form 1, EASA or CAA Form 1, and uh, any reports and images would be, would be forwarded on. Any critical defects that are found will need to be measured Okay, and we have to make a decision. It could be that we measure that defect, no further action is required. It might be there has to be a repeat inspection over a period of time to monitor that defect. It might be that there's a limited amount of time just to get that aircraft back to base. Okay, worst case, or we could perhaps be referred to a manufacturer for further guidance from them. Finally, it could be unserviceable. Okay, that's quite a serious thing. Typically, it costs around about a million pounds in that situation to get the engine off and send it off. And that's the baseline figure, engine overhaul. And the sort of defects we see are cracks, missing material, bending on blades from FOD damage, erosion, nicks, 
Burning for blocked cooling holes, that nozzle guide vein going around, that's serious because those things will melt if they're blocked. Volcanic ash, for example, sand turns to glass as well. Um, how do we measure the defects? So the boroscope has a stereo lens. Okay? If you think of our eyes, the picture there of the face, our eyes, we see in three dimensions. It's the same with the boroscope, and in essence what it does, there's a known angle between those two lenses, and it looks at the pixels on both sides of the image, and it can determine where they are in space. We've also got 3D phase measurement uh, by companies like GE, who are, uh, that's a very clever thing, to do with casting patterns onto an image and looking how the shadow changes. It's very clever, very useful as an inspector, because you don't have to keep changing the tips on the boroscope all the time to make a measurement. Okay, and it's really great because you end up with almost like a grid, a mesh of the defect, and you can measure other parts afterwards as well. Um, the uh, maintenance manual gives us limits that we can make a decision, go or no go. And as I said earlier, some uh, defects can be repaired. The physics, that is a compressor disc that uh, unfortunately there was a defect from you can, from the start. You can see that's in engine number two. You can see it's gone right through the exhaust. That came from engine number one. So the forces, as you can see, the physics, that is why it is critical that with the defects, a small crack can cause um, untold damage if that blade fractures off and goes downstream. Okay? But thankfully, because of the, the level of safety and the um, detail in which we inspect things, this is what we're trying to uh, avoid. FOD needs to be removed and retrieved. Bird debris, good luck coins. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Live scorpion found in the engine. You name it, okay? Birds nesting in the engine. Anyway, so um, when we look at defects, we identify them in terms of their location, where they are, that is important because you need to decide uh, based on where it's located on the blade. The direction, axial, engine shaft direction, radial, blade direction, circumferential, and the magnitude. Um, what engines can I inspect? There's a whole range of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but it ranges from the business class uh, range aircraft, things like the BR700 series, CF34, the smaller series, um, Pratt & Whitney 617 on the Phenom, the small and medium class, the passenger jets, the 737, A320, Embraer's, CFM56 Leap, V2500, CF34-8. Um, the medium and larger size jets, 747, Airbus, okay? But don't forget APUs as well. Um, the APUs we do as well, we do inspections for. Some manufacturers actually don't require inspections for them. But just put yourself in a situation where you need to use the APU. I'm sure all of you know of a time when somebody needed to use the APU uh, fairly recently with a dual engine failure. So you can't just ignore it, especially with the ETOPS as well that we mentioned earlier. Okay, and also helicopter turbine engines. Um, other duties, so we do boroscope training. Um, train engineers how to boroscope themselves so they can get an approval. Engine ground run training in the simulators. So engineers have to carry out tests up to full power. And it's very important 
That accident, um, sadly, that's actually at the Airbus factory. Aircraft struck a wall and was written off. Thankfully, everybody survived, but it took nine hours to shut down one of the engines with the crew still inside. Engine ground run. So we have to train on the simulators. Uh, we have to train people just to be aware and react for those emergencies, which hopefully will never happen. Um, we also do consultancy services, uh, legal work, legal support. We help people with cost saving and so on. Um, and there's a very wide range of people that we are uh, working with. Um, life as an airworthiness surveyor, I think sort of similar things touched on earlier on. You can have a routine hot section inspection, uh, a combustion chamber at HPT, uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, you might be doing a, f a full front to back, okay? And human factors, the environment, is it minus 32 outside in Siberia? Is it plus 45 in Dubai? What clothes are you going to wear? Is there any access? Some of these aircraft, especially because of COVID, have been placed on far sides of airports and there's just nothing there. Getting there, access to the engines, getting the ports removed, staging, security clearances, that can take days. COVID-19, all the paperwork, passenger locator, passenger locator, passenger locator, you know? Travel delays, remote locations, and the latest AMM getting access to that as well. But I have a smile on my face. I'm very privileged to be able to do this job. And there are, I should add, a lot of opportunities for younger people who are interested. Look at getting an apprenticeship. Contact the latest MRO maintenance organization. You know, plenty of opportunities. Things like plain talking is fantastic at enthusing people. It gives people to watch and listen to. And, you know, an uncomparable variety of different people um, to hear from. So, Superman says, flying statistically is the uh, safest way to travel. I just want to leave you with these words for perhaps a few moments for questions, although I don't know if I've overrun. Uh, our enjoyment of the gift of flight today is a result of the many individuals um, who uh, take part in promoting its cause, thus facilitating its ongoing efficiency, development and safety for all. In other words, in other words everybody who works towards making it safe, efficient and effective. Thank you very much for listening and happy 400th mm, show yeah. to Plain Talking UK. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Peter, I've got a quick question for you sure. if you don't mind. Um, so over the years I've managed to break a Trent 700, a CFM 56 and a V2500 twice. Have you got any tips for me going forwards? <laughs> Um, uh, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that, really. Uh, I don't know. Go easy on the throttles. Yes? That's a complicated one, really. In the main, it's the, it's the IASA and the CAA. But there are times where you know, we're asked to consult with, with other authorities. That's a complicated process. Majority of people want an EASA Form 1. Um, obviously, the CAA Form 1 is, is quite um, important as well. Brexit has caused um, quite a lot of uh, confusion, understandably. Um, but yeah, it's mainly EASA and it's mainly two CAA and EASA. But yeah, there are occasionally times where not so much working with authorities, you know, we can just offer advice to people and you don't necessarily, because that advice, you're not giving someone a certificate. So oh, somebody once said, I've got an APU, don't, it won't start, can you have a look? 
that's all they wanted was for us to look inside it. Okay, so yeah. Well, Hi, yeah. Hi. So we always know aviation comes a lot of money. Yes. So when you get something that's a bit poopy, such as a volcanic ash. Yeah. What happens? Do they just do they still call you in where they know? Look, there's a high chance it's going to be a little bit rubbish yeah. on the ground because it's in the vicinity. Yeah, sure. Like, do they call you in or just go? Look, we're just going to replace it. We're just going to sort it out ourselves. I think it depends. If there, there will be a, a in the maintenance manual, it will describe if you find volcanic ash. The other thing that I'm encouraging people to do is to do a radiation check in such cases um, because you'd be surprised. Um, generally, that will need inspecting because you want to find out what, uh, where is the ash, what cooling holes are blocked, and you can see streaks next to the cooling holes and identify where that is. And if anything can be done, I don't know if it can, that would have to go to the manufacturer. They would want a full, they would want a full picture and they would invest the money. Even sometimes with an engine, m many times I've looked at an unserviceable engine. So I think they probably would spend the money to get a full picture they'll get second, third, fourth uh, people just to get a whole range of different um, views on what, what's there. But yeah, a thorough inspection, definitely, yeah. Captain Nick. Peter, uh, great talk, thanks very much Thank indeed. Um, when the 787 was suffering all its problems with Rolls-Royce engines, yes. uh, and uh, airlines were under huge pressure, as was the engine manufacturer, to uh, keep the aircraft airborne, a lot of engine swaps, etc. What I'm interested in is I, I saw some pictures of uh, some of the internals of the aircraft engines that showed enormous amounts of damage. Uh, I, as a pilot, would have you know been horrified to see, but these aircraft were still flying. So what I'm asking is, were the airlines and the engine manufacturers under any pressure? to change what would have previously been considered bad damage to allow the aircraft to continue flying uh, under a new uh, modified series of limitations uh, that uh, wouldn't previously have been considered? Uh, I'd just say no. Uh, they just, from the start, this is the limit. That's the end of that. Whether anything else happens, we wouldn't know about it if it does. But I would say I'm 99% sure this is the limit for the blades uh, and so on. And you know, people can put pressure on, but there's only so far you can go. Um, safety's key, it's that simple. Otherwise you're in jail for 32 years, corporate manslaughter, okay? And uh, so it's a very good question. Yes, a lot of, there's a lot of stories one can bring to mind to do with incidents, to do with safety damage, things inside of engines. They have to, if there is an ongoing issue or a concern, a service bulletin comes out, they have to think of a way of dealing with it and you know, do, do these blades need to be replaced, for example, what can we do? But they, they can't, they're not gonna ever move the goalposts. It's a very good question, but they're pretty merciless and what would happen in, if, if there was an engine that wasn't any good, for example, some, somebody manufactured, well, that's going to be a legal matter, isn't it? Were you who, who sets the goalposts? Inter well, probably the manufacturer, I would and say. And they were the ones having the problem, though. So they were setting their own goalposts for their own engines. Yeah, what, what I'm saying is you, you, when you manufacture an engine, you, you're going to make a decision what's serviceable and what's not, and you're going to test things. And if anything happens, you have to take responsibility for it. So any legal repercussions and so on. But safety is always key. 
for sure. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Well, you know, I think about engines and I think about automobiles and mechanics and yes. certain manufacturers of automobiles, uh, and I think about Subaru in particular, it's one that comes to mind. The Subaru manufacturer would never say, with, when you get up to 100,000 miles, you're going to have to replace the head gasket, but every mechanic that ever worked on it would tell you that's what's going to happen, and you knew it. Are there certain things with certain engines that you know it's going to happen when it reaches a certain number of hours that the manufacturer is not necessarily going to speak about, but you know it's an automatic thing? Generally, the manufacturer will, have, uh, will be made aware pretty quickly when things are starting to happen, purely and simply because, well, it gets down to legals fairly fast. And there are, it, in the airlines and maintenance organizations, there are teams of people constantly doing legal work and looking for how money which has been unnecessarily lost can be reclaimed lawfully. And because of that, anything that happens pretty quickly, the manufacturer is going to uh, find out. CFM leap, abradable liners, I think, the shrouds on the high-pressure turbine, there's problems. And these engines, what, 2016? New engines. And there's issues already, you know? So you know, there's, there's going to be a consequence for that, you know, on a, on a, a leap engine, very nice, efficient engine, but... It's got blisks in it, so that's like a complete, rather than having individual blades, you've got a complete machined part, a quarter of a million pounds. If you get too much damage, you've got to replace the whole blisk. You can blend some of the damage out, okay? Uh, but generally speaking, the manufacturer will know pretty quickly there'll be service bulletins issued, uh, procedures that need to be done. But then, yeah, it's, it's really like with your car, you know, if you discovered you've got to take it back because the power shift gearbox doesn't work or something, then you'd be going back saying, well, how? I want some money back here. And that is what is effectively happening, I believe. So, Hi. Um, Hi. So, a really good talk, really interesting. I used to work for um, an aviation manufacturer and repair. Yes. So I, I kind of understand where you're coming from with this. Sure. But what I'm really interested in is, I, I used to work in inspections on def, um, fault, faulty parts. So you go out to an airline, they say, oh, the engine won't start, we don't know why. What, what kind of approach are you taking? I know you do a wide range of different models, but what kind of a pro general approach are you taking when you, when you get that kind of scenario happen? To be honest, when I, because I spoke about the APU that wouldn't start, actually 99% of the time, we simply get a task that's raised, which is a, a routine inspection. We're, our job isn't to sort of problem solve. That will be down to the the MRO, the maintenance repair organization themselves, if there is an issue. Our job is to uh, provide an inspection. So the approach we take, it's very much laid out for us, in, as you probably know, on the work card to carry out the task and carry out the inspection and provide feedback. Occasionally, we'll get someone who'll ask us, would really like to see, can you have a look here? And they raise a work order and we simply produce a report then. But if you want to issue Form 1, then you have to obviously refer in accordance with the parts of the aircraft or engine maintenance manual. So really, in answer to your question, it's, it's almost that we don't really do the problem-solving side. However, as part of our other roles, we do offer consultancy as a separate thing. And we can, you know, somebody who look, is looking to buy a 747, for example, may come to us and we'll try and find one for them for a for, you know, cargo conversion or something. So sorry, it's not a very <laughs> direct answer to that. Okay. Lovely. 
that's a brilliant, Peter. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you, very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff, Peter. Really good. Uh, right. Um, one of our listeners, long-term listeners and followers of the show, Micah, is here. And he's come from Portland, Maine, to Heathrow. A pretty straightforward journey, you would have thought. This piece of VT will uh, uh, make me be a bit of a fibber. So uh, let's, let's see how we got here, shall we? all the way from the east coast of the USA to celebrate the 400th episode of Plain Talking UK. It's kind of funny how I think about the PTUK podcast. You see, I'm very proud of them. Like the pride I would feel for a younger brother. You got to understand that sometimes, most times in fact, I think about a whole bunch of podcasts as family. There's the airplane geeks, the oldest sibling, then the airline pilot guy, the middle child, and our younger brother, Plain Talking UK. Now, there are other parts of the family, too. For example, there's the Plain Safety podcast, the adopted sibling that someone left on our doorstep one day. We took them in because, well, it's a mitzvah, the right thing to do, and, of course, there's always room at our table. Then there are some of those odd podcast cousins. Flying in Life is one of them. So is the A320 podcast, and, of course, Opposing Bases. We have some drunken uncles, too, though I promise not to talk about them here. But we're a big happy family, too big, in fact, for all of us to gather together in one place so not everyone could be here in person to celebrate PTUK's big day. The fact is, I wasn't sure I was going to attend this celebration in person either. Do you know why I'm here? Well, you can blame Brian Coleman for it. Yes, Pasadena Brian, Brian Coleman, former associate producer of the Airplane Geeks podcast and creator and host of the Journey is the Reward podcast. You can blame him. I certainly do. It's his fault. He's the reason I'm here. It all started almost exactly six years ago. It was February of 2016 when Brian called me and asked if I wanted to go to the Farnborough Air Show. I was reluctant. Why would I want to travel all that way for another air show? I didn't know Brian that well back then. Neither of us can remember exactly when we actually met in person. It was sometime before that phone call when we recorded a show as part of the Airplane Geeks at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum Uverhazi Center. It took me a couple of years to find out that Brian can sell ice to Eskimos. Needless to say, within two weeks of that February 2016 phone call, the trip to Farnborough was planned. I've regretted it ever since. It was during that trip that I got to meet Nev, an impeccable host, I might add, and Carlos and Matt and Owen and Pip and Al and on and on and on, you know, all the usual suspects. It was just awful. I found out I really liked them. And then they seemed to like me too, or at least tolerated me enough to be able to humor me into believing that they liked me. It was during that trip that I first appeared on PTUK. It was a live show from Farnborough on the deck of the airshow press area. In order to get that space, Carlos and I had to do some fancy talking and ended up appearing together on the Farnborough Air Show radio network. All of us became friends, stayed pretty well in touch, close enough that many of us got together the following year in Pittsburgh thanks to Major Rick Bell. That, by the way, is when Matt learned of Brian's great sales abilities. Matt found himself in the middle of the Atlantic on a United 757, wondering how he got into that predicament. Like I said, you can blame Brian. 
Since then, Brian and I got into a rhythm of travel planning together. For the most part, he handles the air and I handle the ground. We did it for Pittsburgh and several more trips to the Smithsonian, and well, here I am. Yes, he did it again. Sure, they say forewarned is forearmed, but it doesn't often work that way. It was early April of last year when the phone rang again, and it was Brian. Hey, Micah, he said, I hear PTUK 400 is coming up in February 2022. I knew it was coming. I knew I would be helpless to his Svengali-like sales technique. I've been looking at flights, he said. You know, I hate to fly across the pond from the East Coast. Not enough flight time to get any sleep, but I can arrange flights so we can meet in Chicago and cross the pond together. I didn't even fight it this time. I knew it would be a losing battle. I just said, I'll start working on the hotels. The hotel situation wasn't too difficult. Other than some complications for our last night in the UK, Radisson split its reward program in two, one for the USA and one for the rest of the world. That took a couple of months to get straightened out so I could use my points here in the UK. Eventually, I was able to get us rooms at the Radisson Blue at Heathrow, a hotel I'd been wanting to try for quite a while. And a few weeks ago, I got an email from Radisson saying that they raised the yellow flag over the Radisson Blue. It's a COVID quarantine hotel now. They moved us to the Radisson Red, a lesser value for the same amount of points, but okay. As it turned out, that was the least of our travel problems. You see, United changed my flight reservations no less than six times. Originally, I was to leave Portland, Maine at 2 p.m. local, get into Chicago two hours later, then board our flight to LHR at about 9 p.m. local. Not so bad. Brian was getting in from LAX around 4, and we'd hang out in the Polaris Lounge together. Well, things changed over and over and over until I was leaving PWM at 7 a.m. and stuck at ORD until 9 p.m. and getting into LHR at 11 a.m. I would be traveling for 24 hours straight all for what should be about 10 hours of travel time when leaving from Portland. I figured I was stuck, but Brian said, leave it to me. I don't know how he did it, but with all his persistence, maybe perseveration, and certainly sales technique, Brian found someone at United Reservations with God-like powers. One day I was eating dinner. A text came in. I'm on the phone with United. They want to patch you in. Can we call you now? That was a no-brainer. The phone rang a few minutes later. So we started talking to this reservation agent, and it turns out he's an airplane geek, in lowercase letters. Well, you know me and Brian, we can't talk to anyone without chatting them up. We learn he's been handling reservations since the days of Continental Airlines. He stayed on when they merged with United and became one of their top agents. He even creates and conducts training classes for other reservation agents. He tells us that flights to Chicago from Portland are limited, but asks how can he help? What would make it easy for us? Now remember... Brian doesn't like to fly across the pond from the east coast of the USA. It's just too short a flight for him to be able to settle down and sleep. So I said, okay, what if I flew to L.A.? Then Brian could meet me there, and we can go nonstop LAX to LHR together. The agent didn't blink an eye and said, okay, and started looking for flights. He came back and told us that United no longer offered direct flights to London from L.A., but they do from San Francisco. Brian asked if it could be arranged for us to meet at SFO, and the agent said, sure. I told you Brian was a silver-tongued devil, didn't I? I figured, what the heck? Rather than sitting in an airport for 12 hours, I might as well be flying. With the air circulation, mask mandates, and privacy of business class, I'd be safer from COVID in the air than at an airport. Plus, what a story! So I agreed to crisscross the USA in order to eventually cross the Atlantic all in one day. So like I said... 
Blame it all on Brian. Well, and a bit on PTUK and the rest of my friends here who I so desperately wanted to see. And of course, I have to take a bit of responsibility myself for being an airplane geek in both upper and lowercase letters. And that's the story of how Uncle Micah, your main man from Portland, Maine, on the northeast coast of the USA, flew to San Francisco to get here to Weybridge in the UK to celebrate 400 wonderful episodes of Plane Talking UK. Damn, I wonder what's going to happen for the 500th. Wow. Micah. <clears throat> what should have been a relatively short trip was a very long trip by the sounds of it. And uh, I think I'm safe in saying that you have made the longest journey here. Uh, so I'm going to present you uh, with a present from all of us at PTUK. Now, I do concede that uh, I didn't get my geography exam at school. In fact, it was unclassified, it was so bad. <laughs> but even I know that going Portland, Maine, Newark, was it? Newark, San Francisco, Heathrow is not necessarily the quickest <laughs> method of reaching the United Kingdom. So I'm going to present you with this to assist you with your future travel plans. It's, it's not good for the carbon footprint, is it, that particular route? <laughs> We should have discovered yeah. Micah and Sharkskin. <laughs> wow. Hoping you can open that, okay. <laughs> oh, the suspense Ooh. is killing me, come on. <laughs> Are you sure it's not Sharkskin? Yeah. Shall I do it for you? <laughs> Did Mrs. Nev write much better with microphones than I am with you. Oh, okay. Oh, this is going so well. Nev's such a good first officer. He's like, let me get that for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, you could do it better than me, could you, huh? Kid? TSA is great. I got my Swiss Army knife with me. So, you know, you were safe. You know, in the military, we used, and this is the point where we used to say, "Is there a safety guy in the house?" <laughs> and sharp, for the benefit sharp of those tools start coming out. Listening to the audio podcast, Nev is um, slicing a bag open with a knife, uh, <laughs> with a butter knife. <laughs> wow! Hey! Yeah, so, for, again, those listening, on, it's my first atlas of the world. There we are, to ensure them a safer, easier to next time. At, uh, at considerable expense, uh, that is the National Ge Geographic for Kids, my first atlas of the world. <laughs> Just so that you know. You are here. Right. <laughs> Very good. Well done, Micah. Very good. Well You're done, Micah. <laughs> Guys, let me tell you, uh, you know, Micah hit it right on the head. This is, this is such a good community and all the podcasts uh, you know how many times have we mentioned it on the show each one of us has developed our own little niche in, in the podcast world the aviation podcast world um, oh by the way we haven't even mentioned the, the recent uh, accomplishments for PTUK in the podcast world have we Oh, uh, we're, we're, oh, are we mentioning that? No, we're not oh, mentioning that. Oh, maybe yes. at the, maybe over beers tonight. Yeah, maybe okay, over yeah. beers. Yeah, we're not mentioning. But that. the reason we are all here is 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 this community is is so awesome and and for me to be here all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina, and we have people from all over the world that it, it's just such a, a cool way. And uh, and and Peter and Neil, 
we love having high caliber guests on like you guys because this is why our listeners um tune in and you know we could sit here and blabber on but do we know what we're talking about probably not you know 51 percent accuracy is all we're shooting for yeah absolutely. Um, at least so yeah. so having companies like yours organizations like yours mm-hmm. are it's just so so good to bring legitimacy to the to the podcast community that is not just here for entertainment but in many in many cases i listen to the a320 podcast quite a bit to learn it's an educational thing and and lots of aspiring aviators are are inspired by our stories and by some of the features that we have so everybody in this room and all across the world for all the podcasts out there have such interesting backgrounds and and this is really uh, about you guys and and this is the reason none of us get paid to do it right so this is why why we're all up here and, and we put all this effort into uh, it now alan white in the has been in the chat room obviously with the excitement of the bag he's very very concerned uh, i should stress he's he's uh, very concerned that the military segment is in grave I had, danger i had to send a, a morse code message to jonathan warner from here via my eyelids saying hey i'll give you a back brief a little bit later we've already dropped one military story <laughs> And you can thank Alfred. No, I'm just kidding. We're we're always on target. Wherever the bomb drops, that's where it's meant to be. So um, speaking of the community, I think we're going to have Carlos and Nev walk around the room a little bit and talk to some of you guys because you've made the trip to get here. So, Thank you. Yeah, uh, Brian, you want to just say a quick thing? Yeah, Yeah, I did. In... Is this All the way up to the top. Yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah, I did, in setting up the uh, travel arrangements for Micah, it, it, yeah, I knew it really wasn't the most direct routing, but I, we've become really good friends through the various shows, and um, it was really just my selfish way of getting to spend more time with him and, and trying to make up for the uh, terrible arrangements I made for Matt in the 757 <laughs> that he's never going to forgive me for. So, <laughs> Mike, it was my pleasure to... <laughs> yeah. Thank you Aww. for being my travel guru. <laughs> so, we're going to have a quick chat with a few people while we're here. Uh, Jenny, hello. Hello. So, Jenny, um, when, when, why do you listen to our show is the, the thing we, no, we, we'll love to know. Don't ask that question, for goodness <laughs> sake. Whatever possessed you to listen to uh, PTUK? <laughs> I can't really remember how I started listening to it. I think uh, through the uh, Aviation Geeks I heard about it. But right from the beginning, then the fact that you're from Norfolk, where you know, uh-huh. family home up there. So, so I've just always really enjoyed it. Great fun. And I have to ask, Jenny, what, what, what's um, your favourite part of the show? My favourite part of the show? Well, I like the commercial. Sorry, Armando. We'll we'll forgive you for that. (laughs) You're going to have to cut some more off that section. Controversial. But can I say that since Armando's been doing the the military segment, I do listen. I do listen to it. I don't jump past it anymore. (laughs) Well, well, that's a win. There you go. (laughs) Better than tuning out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you, Brian. Dad, just a quick hello to you. Yeah, hello to everybody. And <laughs> yeah, this is my father, Phil, by the way, uh, who got me into aviation, to be fair, at an early age. So a good big thanks to my dad for oh, it's for, your for fault, on me. is it? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, thank you. So special thanks to dad. He is, he is at, he's very supportive as well of me doing this show, uh, as well as Gemma. But dad is very supportive, so big thanks to my father, Phil. But we're going to run around to Mr. Haley. Oh. Graham, there he is. Graham, how are you? 
Good, thank you. So, oh, very well. You know, four hundred and all that. So, Graham, um, long-term listener? Uh, far too long. Um, <laughs> oh, geez. Like many, I have Max Flight to blame. I think for the start and everything. I found the geeks many, many years ago. They mentioned some American podcast that had just hit 200 episodes and it was a very good show where they'd all got drunk somewhere. So I thought I'd listen to that. And then they mentioned some people in that weird place over in Norfolk. Oh. Um, so I was sceptical. But yeah. here we are. <laughs> many, many episodes later. So you're not too far from here, are you, Graham? Uh, not too far. About an hour west nowadays uh, over in Hampshire working on a contract for the military. So... He's a uh, convert. He's a <laughs> he started commercial, and now he's better up in the Better add that story back in. I'm on the <laughs> and uh, your favorite part of the show? The military segment. Hey, oh, there Any lovers of commercial here? We're yeah. slowly taking over. <laughs> and uh, are you a tuning-in visual uh, viewer every Friday, or do you download the show? Uh, when I'm around on a Friday evening, yes. Normally while cooking, cleaning, and running around the house, and running back to the chat room occasionally. Uh, but otherwise, I try and catch it in the car on the way to and from work. Ah, oh, there we go. Quick, get the military on the way now. Yeah. Speed up. Thank you, Graham. Thanks for coming. Yeah, brilliant. Over to you, Nev. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Carlos. Uh, Tony, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Um, so, <laughs> when did you start listening to the show? It's been a few years now, um, maybe episode 50. It's been a long time, and it's grown over the years, and it's become a real good show, a real pleasure to, pleasure to listen to. And I'd like to thank you all for putting on this amazing show. Uh, meetings like this are great, because with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, it's fantastic to meet up with people, and you get to meet like-minded people. With all, we've all got a passion for aviation, one way or another, and it's just really nice to meet. It's been a long time since we've had a big meet-up. Mm. That's very nice of you to say, Tony, and very well said. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. It's fantastic. And just uh, finally, uh, around the corner here, I'm going to have a quick chat with Myla. How long have you been listening to the show for, uh, Myla? Oh, it's been, I think, just half a year before Duxford. Oh, wow. Time. No, not Duxford, Farnborough. So it's been years. Actually, Miami Rick introduced me to APG, and then I met Micah there in one of the chat rooms, and then it just kind of went from there. It's been years. So And, and you enjoy the, the community, you know, me I, meeting people? Yes. I, I just... I met Liz today for the first time. He's like, hello, you're here? Wow. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I really love it. Like Tony said, it's so good to finally have something um, positive and, and, like, for the community to see each other and have a good time. And, and yeah, I Absolutely really fantastic, Mike. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much. Uh, I, think, I think that was one of my, my things, actually. When we did the, uh, the 2016 was the first time that we sort of all, all had a bit of a gathering. And I think he's, has he, has he gone? He's, where is he? He was sat there, but it was entirely Stuart's fault that this whole thing started, wasn't it? Where we, st we did this sort of big meet-up thing for the first time. And I, I, I must say, my, my memory, my, my first memory was, I was I, we were in, I think, I can't, I can't remember the name of the pub now, but we were all in this pub, weren't we, on the Friday night. And I could hear all these voices going on around me and it was I could hear Jeff's voice and I could hear Pip's voice and I could hear um, you know all, all these voices that I'd, I'd listened to for ages and I think hang on a minute they're all around me this is very strange 
This is very strange. I, I was in the same boat. I, I was an APG listener, and I got to meet these guys over at the two, our, our PTK 200th before I was on the show. And for me, it was the same experience that everybody's having in the audience right now is just putting the names to the faces. And, and, but weirdly enough, you feel like you know everybody, yeah. and everybody knows everything about you. And it was just the coolest thing to just show up to this random. And you know, I was pretty nervous. I, I won't lie. I was pretty nervous going down to the 200th going, oh, my gosh. I'm, is this going to be like my, my high school prom where I'm just going <laughs> to sit in the corner and not t- talk to anybody? Um, it turned out not to be that way. You know, no. and, we, and we got to jump into the simulators, which was pretty which cool. Which is also cool. Okay. Yeah, and for the record, uh, Laura Davis in the chat room did notice that uh, Nev did break out the muff. Uh, of course, so absolutely. That was our. That the, have a, I had to have a bit of an outing. Our sixth, yeah. our sixth member of the show. Yeah, right. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, anyway, we we ought to do some of that military thing, haven't we? Really? Oh, we've got this in the video. Oh, we've got oh, listener we? videos. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Oh, I was trying to my... sabotage myself. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, all right then. So we've just got one, I think, because the the other one that well, I don't, I, the other one, he's now here. I don't know. <laughs> all right, let's play the one then. Okay, he says I've lost it. Hang on, sorry. There we go. So the, uh, apologies from uh, Dirk S. Hi, PTUK folks. Uh, greetings from Germany. This is Dirk S. Uh, speaking. Sorry that I cannot make it to the 400th in person because, uh, yeah, as you know, BA is having its technical meltdown since yesterday, so my flight got cancelled. And uh, there goes my travel plan. Yeah, it's a pity I cannot be there with you and uh, see you in person and uh, have a great day together with all of you. But that's the way it is. And I will definitely follow along uh, on YouTube and see you in the YouTube chat room. So I just wanted to say congratulations to 400 episodes and um, have a great day. Have a great show. And on to the next 400. See you there. (laughs) Bye-bye. Hi, guys. Carlos, Matt. Nev, Armando, and the ever-mysterious producer, John. Just wanted to say congratulations, guys, on 400 wonderful episodes. Uh, You know, I really know and appreciate how much work you guys put into it every single week, week in, week out, without fail. It really is a tremendous effort, and I really do enjoy uh, the podcast, each and every one of them. It keeps me in touch with the, the aviation world. Uh, so thanks ever so much. Looking forward to meeting and mingling with you all today and eating all the food. Here's to the next 400. Whee. Cheers, guys. <laughs> there we are. Thank you, Pip, who is here now. Which is, that was a, da- nice. that was a damn nice good green screen there, Pip. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> well, hey, Matt. Yes. Despite our best efforts... I think we've still got a little bit of time for the military, but I will say we're going to rush through the military because we have an an awesome interview at the end of the show Mm. that I want to get to. So if you're ready, let's hit the button. Let's hit the button, yeah. Worldwide, you can imagine where those video clips came from. Jonathan Warner, basically Jonathan <laughs> Warner, <laughs> absolutely. All right, this first story is from TaskOnPurpose.com. The Navy drops the hammer on five sailors accused of leaking that F-35 video that we all wanted to watch. So, four <laughs> enlisted sailors and one junior officer are now facing charges in the connection with the unauthorized release of that footage from uh, the the January crash of the F-35C Lightning off the the deck of the USS Carl Vinson. 
Now, while that ship uh, was operating in the South China Sea, obviously the Navy didn't want this video to get out that quickly. Following an investigation, the Navy has charged one senior chief petty officer, three chief petty officers, and one ensign with a failure to obey a lawful order under Article 92 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. The Navy did not identify those sailors by name, but it did say that all five will remain on active duty. Now, this video, which appeared in early February, uh, shows a cell phone recording uh, footage from the aircraft carrier's pilot landing air television, as well as a view of the ship's deck during the crash. I think there was a second one that came out on Twitter uh, that was filmed from the rear deck of, the, of that air, aircraft carrier. So as this F-35C assigned to Strike Fighter Squadron 147 uh, approaches the USS Carl Vinson, a voice can be heard shouting, wave off, wave off, before flames burst, and the jets uh, strikes basically the, the deck in an unstable approach there. Aircraft skids across the length of the deck before crashing into the sea. Uh, sailors, sailors, you can tell, are running across the deck, um, calling on the radio to recover the pilot, and the, the general alarm goes off on the aircraft carrier. So, of course, this uh, crash remains under investigation. It'll probably take a year, probably two years, for a final report to come out. Um, this crash actually injured seven sailors on the deck of the aircraft carrier, including the pilot. The Navy, as of today, still has yet to recover that aircraft out of the ocean. Um, and that was another one. There was a couple uh, social media pictures that came out of the jet floating in, in the sea. Those were also unauthorized, obviously. So commander, a Navy commander, Zach Harrell, in a statement said recently, we're grateful to the highly trained sailors aboard, aboard the USS Carl Vinson who immediately responded to ensure that the pilot was recovered from the water. All injured personnel were cared for. The flight deck was cleared and reset for operations. And after a short pause in accordance with safety procedures, a rapid response from the crew enabled flight operations to resume with minimal impact emission requirements. And I think I saw somewhere it was within just a few hours that the aircraft carrier was back to fully operational. Um, so while the pictures taken from the USS uh, Carl Vinson showed uh, this crash uh, F-35 in the water, uh, that came out four days after that incident. No, no charges have been filed in connection with those images. Now, for this, uh, there was actually the British F-35 that also crashed. That was an unauthorized video, and that individual was also disciplined by the military. And I, I kind of wanted to talk to Captain Nick about this one, because for us in the military, operational security was such a huge thing. And even just before the show, um, you know, we, we dropped the, the one of the military stories that we dropped was about the situation in Ukraine. We're going to have a chance to talk about that over the next couple of shows, I'm sure. But social media and ADSB tracking and all those websites that are tracking those aircraft are have really changed the game when it comes to military operational security. Back in the day, even, you know, I, for me it was 25 years ago now that I joined the military and it was just a direct threat to your face from your commander saying, if you talk about this, anybody talks about it, anything before, during, or after this operation, it's the end of your career. So I wanted to talk to Captain Lick a little bit about his thoughts on social media, these images coming out, discipline, and, and, and about the airlines, too, your career in the airlines. Did you have the same policies on social media and, and leaking information? It's a very good question, uh, Amanda. Um, in the military, uh, there's absolutely no question. Uh, you are a signatory of the Official Secrets Act, and uh, keeping uh, information about military equipment is a vital part of every military personnel's job. Uh, and uh, the illegal release uh, of information that might seem 
Um, well, that's fair enough because we're on the ship, we've all seen it, uh, and uh, I don't see a problem in showing my friends at home. Um, nobody is completely aware of what their video might reveal to a, a hostile force, um, particularly if it's of the latest equipment that's there. But everyone should know that that is a complete no-no. Uh, and we already know that um, faux pas have been um, revealed uh, by serving personnel in war zones when their mobile phones have revealed their locations. Uh, they've uh, perhaps texted home, just left their uh, position trackers on. Uh, so nowadays, uh, I suspect in all forces, um, their own phones will be confiscated when they're on action, on active duty so that they can't accidentally reveal information that would be vital and easily uh, discovered um, by the opposing forces. Um, is it right? Absolutely yes. Uh, it is right that they should be held to a, a very high standard. It's the same standard, or similar, that you will get in your workplace because your airline will have a policy um, concerning uh, the release of information um, uh, that goes on the social media about their operations that they don't want their competitors to know or it may reveal a slightly different view uh, that they would like to have their airline portrayed. Cabin crew having fun after a flight with no passengers on board, uh, hiding in the lockers, the overhead bins, uh, drinking the mm -hmm the booze that's left over from a flight, this sort of thing, uh, really sometimes doesn't portray an image of a really nicely well-run and uh, sensible uh, airline. So that sort of thing, you'll find yourself without a job if you're not yeah. careful. So if you are an employee with an airline, make sure you have read the policy that uh, concerns uh, social media, uh, the photographs you take uh, and the videos you release. And in the most case, the airline will want a positive view of its um, workforce uh, and the way it operates, and they will be very happy if you release that. And you, but you release something that's a bit edgy, um, uh, then that's going to go very badly for you. Yeah, and you guys on APG, you just talked about the, the pea prune uh, story where... Uh, pilots were voicing their concerns about their airline and the airline was coming down on them. It was Middle East Airline. Um, we, every organization that I've worked for had similar social media um, regulations and some of the comments in the chat room here, you know, Laura Davis says she works in vehicle testing where it's supposed to be a job ending offense if you take a video or leak any other information. Uh, Micah in the chat room is, well, you can ask face to face. She says, uh, in uh, past years, military service people have had limited access to back home. Um, have we gotten soft now? Should we be confiscating phones, cameras, and electronic devices? That's an interesting question, Mike. I had to actually face with that um, towards the, the later part of my 20-year career, right? When, when you go from being one of the troops to being in management, you're trying to manage that. And, and so having the technology to, to talk back home is a huge morale boost. Um, it was never, we were never on, under the guise that those communications were not monitored. Um, so even you talking to your family back home from a deployed location, uh, whether it was Skype, FaceTime, I mean, it all started with just uh, having telephone lines. In, in the mid-'90s, having a telephone line back home was, was, was a huge morale boost. But all of those communications 
are, are monitored by your own forces for operational security. And, um, and everybody knows that. Uh, I think the amount, this is my personal opinion, the amount of negative incidents uh, do not outweigh the positive morale that comes from having those communications. That being said, uh, I did multiple deployments to Iraq, and the first thing that when people came in country, we had a little locking zip bag, and all of their cell phones, hard drives, thumb drives, anything, uh, all went into that, uh, into that package. Um, me, as the senior leader in, that, in those deployed locations, sometimes in forward deployed locations, uh, you know, we considered Baghdad and, and Balad Air Base a, uh, a major base, but if you're out in, in Tikrit, Mosul, um, in Iraq, for example, uh, you wouldn't see that until your last day when you're getting on the rotator to come back home is when we would give you your little baggie back, and it had, uh, I had the key to it, and it was stored in, in my safe in my office. So I, I made sure that nobody had access to that. So um, those times have changed, and even our best efforts as military leaders to ensure that there are no devices on the base, um, they still make it through. Uh, but hey, a cell, phone's connect to, a cell phone is going to connect to a cell tower, and we know who's on those cell phone towers. So the moment we see a U.S. registered cell phone pop up, um, it's, it's a very short timeline between, <laughs> <laughs> between it popping up and, and you finding that individual and saying, mm, shouldn't have done that. Self-critiquing moment right here. But. So D Dave Homewood is actually saying in the chat room here, he's saying that during my 1991 training in the RNZAF, we were shown the footage of USS Forrestal on fire and were then told it was still classified, uh, despite uh, happening in 1967. It's now in the public today. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, eventually something will um, time out, and it's usually around 30 years unless something's particularly sensitive. So yeah, I, I, I remember exactly the same, seeing that forest or fire, because it was a perfect example of how not to conduct an arming exercise. Well, it was an exercise, it was war, so perhaps there's an excuse. Um, but it was an appalling accident, and you learn a lot from seeing it, but it wasn't the sort of thing you really wanted the general public to have access to. Yeah, I, I bet. So the last story for the military. Uh, this comes to us from The Drive. Dramatic videos emerge online of Black Hawk helicopter crashing near Utah Ski Resort. Uh, the Utah National Guard confirmed uh, that two UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters were involved in a crash in Snowbird, Utah, near the Snowbirds, uh, Snowbird Ski Resort uh, around 9.25 uh, local time on February the 22nd. Uh, fortunately, there were no injuries, no serious injuries reported. Multiple videos, though, have since surfaced of the dramatic mishap. Matt's playing them on the screen. Uh, of two Blackhawks landing in close formation before they are enveloped in a cloud of snow and crashing. Uh, the incident occurred in an area known as Mineral Basin, a large bowl-shaped depression in the U.S. Forest Service land just outside of Snowbird. Three hours after the crash, the Utah National Guard confirmed the accident on Twitter, adding that both UH-60s were damaged in the crash and that the incident is currently under investigation. Uh, in a press conference held in Snowbird the afternoon of the incident, Utah National Guard's Aviation Public Affairs Officer Jared Jones said the aviation is an inherently dangerous business, and it was a blessing that everyone was okay. Uh, Jones said he's unaware of how many crew were on board each helicopter, but the standard crew consists of three to four personnel. 
Jones also said the Blackhawks were landing at an approved mountainous LZ, or landing zone, up in Snowbird, where they kicked up snow upon final approach. The aircraft probably lost sight of the ground, and Jones said that adding a piece of the main rotor blade from the lead helicopter broke off and struck the second as it was about to land. Uh, the second Black, Horse, uh, Black Hawk was still able to land successfully, and Jones said it's unknown exactly how the rotor blade broke off during the landing, and that its investigation will likely be able to determine the cause. Uh, Jones also added the helicopters were far enough away from the skiers at Snowbird as to not pose any threat during the crash or the aftermath. To the knowledge, no fuel was also leaked, and Jones also said the aircraft are contained, and there's personnel on site with the aircraft. The crew was able to join, or able to go on their own accord. Unfortunately, take basic tram back down and get checked out by their medical folks at <coughs> Snowbird. I like that last, sen- that last paragraph in there, that... They basically crashed these two helicopters and then jumped on the ski on the ski uh, gondola ski go. yeah. and just said, "Well, I guess this is the quickest way back down to civilization." So, um, yeah, this is an interesting story that Matt wasn't able to show the video of the actual um, mishap, but all you can see is a bunch of white snow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mother Nature classified that one for us because uh, it was just a whiteout condition. Uh, nobody was injured. Uh, the guys apparently just got out and just kind of traipsed around the snow and probably weren't expecting that to happen at that point. Um, for for me, when I first saw this, I said, well, you know, we, we used to practice in all kinds of different landing zones. Um, for the Utah National Guard, this is a regular mission for them. They do rescue um, rescue missions up there for hikers, hunters, pretty much anything out there. So it's important for them to be... Um, well-trained and proficient in flying in those kind of snow conditions. That being said, would I have chosen a landing zone at the bottom of a ski lift? I guess other than for the advantage of if you're going to crash it, you can take the gondola back down or ski back down. Would I have chosen that? Mm, probably not. You know, It probably adds a little bit more to the risk score of that mission. But we have somebody in the audience that's actually skied in Snowbird, or you were actually just there a couple weeks ago, right? <laughs> I didn't actually ski at Snowbird that time around, but I've skied there plenty of times. For those who don't know, I grew up, um, Snowbird was the closest ski resort to to where I lived when I lived in Utah for a number of years. Um, And I'm very familiar with Mineral Basin. I'm very familiar with that lift, very familiar with that area. Um, I did not realize that the the Utah National Guard had a landing zone there for helicopters. It is not uncommon to see a lot of helicopters in the canyons there um, for a variety of reasons. They actually do heliskiing. So they'll pick up skiers kind of at the base of the mountain, take them to the top. Um, they do not infrequently um, fly into the canyon to, to uh, remove, rescue, retrieve folks who have very serious injuries and need to be transported very quickly to the local hospitals um, and those who have become stranded in the backcountry somehow, either skiing, hiking, whatever. So, yeah, I agree with your assessment. Um, the need to be able to operate proficiently in these challenging environments is, is super important. Um, but I think what I read about this particular landing zone, and I'm, I'm on APG, so if I got this wrong, you can, it's our 50% rule. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it said that the landing zone was about 150 meters from the ski area yeah. boundary. So 150 meters is not terribly far. And if you actually look at the map, you know, the, um, the chairlift is, the base of the chairlift is inset from that just a bit, probably another, I don't know, maybe, I'm, I'm not sure on the distance on that to be, to be very honest, but there is a walkout area for folks who, it's 
Mineral Basin is this huge, wonderful back bowl area at Snowbird. It was used to be completely, well, very difficult to access. We had to actually do a bunch of hiking to get in there and then a bunch of hiking to get back out. So adding these chairlifts has opened up all of this wonderful terrain back there. But if you take some of the bowls kind of farther towards the edge of the resort, um, then you have to walk back up to this lift. And that walkout area is right along the boundary there. So that's 150 meters from where they're doing this training exercise. Um, the day that they conducted this exercise, um, so the week that I was there, they had the resorts hadn't had new snow in, I don't know, a month. <laughs> it was very, it was almost sad. Um, but they had just had new fresh snow, and you can see the effect of that when they go into land in this area. We didn't show the video, but um, you know, as they're getting closer to touching down, it just kicks up all of this fresh snow that's sitting on top of this hard pack, and it made the visibility very, 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 um, uh, it was difficult to see. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, we, we practiced for those conditions, but that's, that was probably a higher risk mission than, it, than, than it needed to be for a you know, Tuesday afternoon training mission. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm going to put him on the spot right now. Matthew C. did such a fine job talking about military the couple times that I wasn't on the show that um, I'm going to announce that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Matt just got super nervous. No, you're, literally, you're, you're always welcome to come on. I, I, I always... I actually yeah. enjoy listening to you talk about military because of your passion for military aircraft. But um, sorry to say that's all the story, the military stories we have time it for is. today. <laughs> Over to you, Ned. Oh, right. thanks. I appreciate it. Time that. for our <laughs> final presenter. And he was going to be our first <laughs> presenter, but uh, he got stuck in some horrific traffic uh, today. Uh, Neil Cluffley is Chief Executive Officer and founder of Faraday Aerospace Limited. Formed in 2014, Faraday has been a pioneer of the new sustainable aviation sector. And Neil, having spoken at events across the globe, is now widely regarded as an expert in hybrid electric flight and regional air mobility. It's my great pleasure to uh, introduce you to Neil Cluffley. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, again, my apologies for being slightly late. Uh, the joys of the M25. It doesn't matter how many years you've lived here, you'll never catch that one on the right day. Um, for me, great honor to be here. Obviously, for your 400th show, um, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak here. It's a big one for you guys. Congratulations for that. But also, more importantly, for coming home. This is my hometown. So I'm a Weybridge lad born and bred. And so I now live, obviously, in Cambridge at Duxford. But for me, this place is very special because I actually used to organize the motorsport days here. So the last competitive event on the banking I organized was a, a demonstration rally. And then when I lived in America four years in San Francisco and I came back, I was one of their advanced instructors over at MB World. So I used to do the silly silver arrows display, burning tires and all that sort of nonsense. So about four miles to the gallon on a C63 Mercedes taking a brand new set of Pirellis from pristine to canvas in about 10 minutes. Um, so much fun. <laughs> from that, I decided we should do things more sustainably. <laughs> it's a better way to do things at that point. And uh, so I had a sweat on obviously getting here to get here on time. And then when you're a gentleman of a certain age and you start hearing things about probes and insertions and inspections, oh. <laughs> you get sweats on for a whole different reason. <laughs> Um, so uh, thanks for that. That's bring, that brings back my uh, appointment I've got to have with my doctor at some point soon. <laughs> anyway, so what are we here to talk about? We obviously we spoke on the show about what we're doing. We're doing a sustainable aircraft program. Uh, I spent many, many years in the commercial aviation market. So uh, owning, leasing, managing commercial jets, 
And it was really from that that we decided we could do something different. We, the regional market is still not delivering everything that it should be able to deliver. Why is that? Well, there's three fundamental problems. Number one is cost of operations. Number two is noise. And number three was always going to be emissions. If we are on the growth curve that we're predicting for commercial aviation, then obviously the more that you're putting into the sky, the more sensitive we've got to become. Now, granted, we're only about 2% of the global emissions, and aviation does get it far more than it probably deserves. However, the aviation community in the industry actually is one of the most reactive industries. It is improving. We've just spoken about the NEO and things like that. The fuel burn rates are coming down, which is changing the dynamic of the industry. But it's still bizarre that you can't fly from Duxford, as I am at the moment, down here. I could have parked into Fair Oaks and then jumped on an Uber in here, and it would have been no problem at all. But <laughs> yeah, we haven't got that. So we decided we were going to uh, do something different. Um, so we decided we were going to look at those three core problems and solve them. We didn't, design, we didn't think we'd just come up with an aircraft and find a use for it. We'd actually look at an asset that would solve the problems. And so based on 30 years of research and R&D from my father's time, my father was a pioneer of the UAV sector. So basically, he came up with the world's pretty much the world's first combat UAV. It was a joined wing V-tail pusher. At the time, this was at the end of the 80s, early 90s, it was by far and away the most advanced UAV in the world. It was being designed for the US Navy and US Air Force mid-range program. Um, and unfortunately, when Gulf War I came along, caused a lot of problems with a contract he had going on in Turkey. Receiver called in, investors uh, pulled the plug, and of course, as per usual, Americans came in, bought the assets to the company, that became the Outrider program. The Air Force then said, actually, you know what? We want our aircraft to go a little higher, a little further. So we'll split the wing. We'll go with a single wing. We'll take the V-tail that was like that, and we'll put it like that. And four years later, a little thing called the Predator appeared. So, um, but a lot of the joined wing work that was done at the time gave us some really interesting flight dynamics. It gave us the ability to do things for the US Navy specifically, it was more about flying aircraft into the back of a destroyer or a battleship or anything that had a helicopter pad. So basically, they used to catch UAVs via nets. And sometimes it would hit the net, sometimes it would hit the ocean, sometimes it would hit somebody on the deck. It was deeply unsatisfactory. So what they wanted to do was have something that could come in with a decent payload at a slow enough flight speed that could hit the helipad and then be caught by a retaining net around the outside. So this, is, this aircraft would have done that. It had full active flaps, it had full disc brakes, it was by far and away the most advanced beastie out there. So a lot of the rationale behind that is what you're seeing here. So what we decided, we're going to create something that's quiet, affordable, sustainable. Um, so just to the point of where we are right now, that is where we are right now. The very first Thomas Sopwith Sheds were right here. The very first British-designed aircraft of whole aircraft and propulsion was a triplane. So this town has got an awful lot of uh, history to it in the first instance. The fact that it's my hometown and the fact that we're now doing what we're doing here, it's, uh, it's a special place. So I'm very, very delighted to be here. But we have a problem. We have a cultural problem. Having lived in the US for four years, America is great because there's 20 reasons why you can do something and there's people prepared to put some money in their pocket to back you to make it happen. Why not? That's the way we should be. Here, that doesn't work like that. We've had a culture for many years, which is, no, no, old boy, uh, we don't do that. There's 20 reasons why you can't do something, and actually there'll be five people who go out their way to try and cripple your project. It's a bizarre culture problem that we have in this country. 
we are getting better, but it takes time. But all of these guys, Whipple, Mitchell, Barnes-Wallace, they've all encountered it, Cam, de Havilland, etc. And we are great pioneers and innovators in this country, especially within aerospace, right up there with the best. So it's about time that we started getting back there, I think. So how do we do that? So let's talk about that regional thing. So why is this model being looked at? Why are we looking at this quickly? Well, I just thought this would be a really simplistic thing. Uh, a typical jet stream, British aircraft design from the past. But just a comparison there, small RJs, large RJs, and turboprops. And one of the things that people may not realize, obviously with a turboprop, fuel burns a lot less, which is great. But the big thing is maintenance costs on a turboprop. Maintenance cost is quite high. So for example, a turbine engine, you're looking at 1,800 hours. You'll do your hot section inspection, 3,000 hours. You'll do your overhaul. Well, hot section, what, $40,000 roughly do that? Overhaul, about half a million. You'll do that three times, and then you do a major overhaul where you replace the disc stack, you're 800,000. So for an engine that costs you 1.2 million, over, say, 30,000 hours, that's going to cost you somewhere in the region of 7.5 to 8 million to operate that one engine in just maintenance cost. Now do you understand why cost of operation is such a major part of why we don't fly regionally? Okay? There are regional airlines, but it's not commonplace. People don't use it like a bus because it's simply too expensive. So how does that change with sustainability? Electric motors, well again, I've had the great pleasure when I was in the US, I drove the first Tesla prototype in 2008. There was a place called the Candy Store. It's a private members club. It is a blacked out windowed building. And in there is a lot of automotive exotica owned by some very wealthy people. A friend of mine has, I think it's Lauda's uh, championship winning Ferrari. There's a red five Mansell Williams in there. The car that took Al Capone to Alcatraz and all that sort of stuff. There's some really amazing cars. So we drove this little roadster and I was blown away. Quite incredible, even back then. That particular car, we now believe, is the one that is bouncing off the asteroids in the space. Because I think that was the first prototype that he then launched. Um, so that's kind of cool. Um, it was in better shape when I drove it than it is now. Um, so let's talk about electric motors. Why is that relevant? Go back to that window, 30,000 hours. With an electric motor, you will not touch it. We won't crack the case on that motor for 30,000 hours. One single moving part. That's a huge cost saving. That's a massive cost saving when you're timesing it by two on a twin turboprop asset. But of course, how do you power it? We're not in the land of milk and honey. There are no unicorns. There's no fluffy pink pandas running around. So there is a real challenge on how you power electric motors. Now, some people think we're going to have all electric aircraft, and it's all going to be great, and it's going to be happening next year or two years' time. No, it's not. Nonsense. And the reason why it's nonsense is very simple. Lithium-ion batteries. There is currently only one lithium-ion battery set up in commercial aviation in use today. What is that? Most of you pilots should know. Got really hot one point, very publicly, 787, absolutely. Now, the great thing about the 787 thing is obviously that is now solved. The problems they have with that are now, those batteries are contained within an armored box. So have we solved the thermal management problem of these batteries? The answer you will get is the box does its job really well. <laughs> Oops. Okay. That's not that true, but it does do its job very well. And the fact of the matter is that with thermal management, if you have got an issue where you may have a chance of something going thermal, you have a major problem. When you look at some of these electrical fires and some of the batteries, you could use 3,000 gallons of water trying to put this thing out. And then it can relight itself again four weeks later. It's a real problem. 
And so for that very reason, the fact that the FAA at the moment are 60% through the regulation writing process, they've still got another 40% to do. The fact that we cannot put an asset into the sky that's carrying people with the chance that something may go thermal means that we're a little way off that yet. And if nothing else, even if you get the smoke, if you're in a car and you have that problem, you pull over the side road, you get out, you watch the smoke, you watch it burn, and that's it. Okay, inconvenient. 10,000 feet at the time, not so easy. And that's if everybody hasn't been knocked out by the, the smoke and everything. So that's why it's a little way away. So we decided to go hybrid. We decided that it would make more sense to use something that was tried, tested, an APU. Use that as a turbo generator. Use it on a set efficient setting where you just turn it on it burns at the most efficient fuel rate we can, and it then provides the electrical power to the electric motors. That was the vision that we came up with, mated it with a design of an aircraft that would do something different. So again, a lot of people would say, three wings, box wing, nonsense, blah, 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 drag. Yeah, had it all over the last eight years. The fact of the matter is, when we went to Cranfield University in, what was it, 2015, I said, if this doesn't work, I walk away from this project. Quite happy to but I think it does. They ran against six different configurations, came back. Firstly, they said, yes, we do think you're mad. We gave up three wings 100 years ago. This is nonsense. Four months later, they came back and went, huh, it works. I said, well, I knew that 30 years ago, but I just needed you to verify it now so that we could push on. So what we've now done is pushed on with Ben Evans down in Swansea. Ben is the guy who's responsible for the aerodynamics of the Bloodhound land speed record car. If you can keep a car on the ground at 1,000 miles an hour, that's a special set of aero skills. <laughs> now, what you want to do is now make this asset jump off the ground as quick as possible. He's the right man to put on the job. Now, he's been working on it and working with us. We've had the guys in charge of the F-35 integration program for the Royal Navy and the Air Force. He's been involved in this program as well, all of which are convinced about what we have here, which is a hugely exciting little airplane. So what do we have? Well, we have something at the moment that is going to be changing. So just as an update from where we were, we've been building the team since we moved into Duxford. We've been getting the funding, so not only have we had to fight a pandemic, we fought a pandemic which has destroyed an industry in a country that just doesn't back its innovators, and we're still here, we're still attracting funding, we're growing the team, and we're pushing forward. Mass There's some stuff coming which I can't talk to you about now, it will come, very exciting, very <laughs> exciting, um, but it's been a hard road. It's been a really, really tough grind, and it's come at a hell, hell of a price. But what do we have? We have an asset that, in, in theory, at this moment in time, we're targeting a 300-meter runway operation of up to five tons of payload, and that can quick change from passenger to cargo in a 15-minute window. So six, six, and six, palletized seating, and so you can fly passengers during the day, take the seats out, fly cargo during the night, do it quietly, do it affordably, do it sustainably. What does that mean in reality? It means that we can now start to put some of these dents into some of these core targets. So we're going to be noise reduction because we're using a ducted fan configuration rather than open prop architecture. We're looking at hybrid electric propulsion, better economics versus existing assets. We're looking at a low-risk certifiable design. We're not talking about EV tolls and tilting rotors and doing all sorts of funky things. This is a standard Part 23 airplane. It has a type certified power source. It sits in the tail cone of an Airbus A350 currently. So that's the type of technology that we're using that we know that the regulating go, okay, I get my head around this, this is sensible. The only bit that's different obviously is using the electric motors and then obviously the power pack that you use in between that. 
Then, of course, you can look at how do we actually make this aircraft future-proof? Well, of course, this is the here and now. This is the first step. Do we think that full net zero is coming? Absolutely. Are batteries going to improve? Yes, they are. Is hydrogen going to be an option? Yes, it might be. <coughs> is an AN other power source coming? Absolutely. There will be something coming that's completely out there that we haven't even seen yet. So what we've done is create an aircraft that has basically got a box of power. Take that box of power out, replace it with a different box of power, it is still an electric airplane. And that's how we've designed this aircraft, so it's got longevity. Take one out, replace it with the other, keep flying it. So basically, the big bit that is really exciting is no infrastructure. We will fly this aircraft on SAFs, or Jet A, or whatever you have. There is no electrical infrastructure need to be put in, there's no hydrogen infrastructure needs to be put in, we will go into all existing airfields everywhere around the world. 5,700 odd in the US, I think. 500 with scheduled services. That's a lot of people who don't have scheduled air service. Then you look at India, Africa, Asia. You go in somewhere like Malaysia and you've got a town somewhere, in order to put the road infrastructure to connect that town with a major city is massively expensive. Or you can put in a 500 meter strip and have that link it to the city. So that was why we came up with the idea that we did uh, for the aircraft and why we're working down this route. Obviously, Honeywell, major partners. I'm going to touch on this quickly because I'm thinking time I'm going to run into this. Uh, so basically, we're talking about regional mobility of people, of cargo, special mission, and firefighting. Again, from having been in California, understanding how devastating wildfires are. Just as a comparison, I think it's something like uh, 950 million carbon tons every year for commercial aviation. No, 900 million carbon tons for aviation, 950 million carbon tons from wildfires around the world in the same given year. It's a massive problem. So whilst we're battering aviation to do better, we also need to start putting out fires better. So firefighting and doing that far more proactively rather than reactionary is something we think is really useful by having assets that can carry a heavy payload near the location and hit something in its infancy. That's a whole different exciting topic. So let me give you an example of what we're talking about. Why does this actually make sense? Well, if you look at a rail trip between London and Manchester, it's about 160 miles. You're looking at about 124 miles an hour, if you're lucky. Uh, journey time, about two hours, 10 minutes on average. Uh, peak single ticket time, 33 quid for a single way. And then 163 first class if you want to be a little comfier. What we're saying is let's do that 160 miles in 230 miles an hour in 41 minutes at 25 quid each way. I put that on the ramp tomorrow, I fill every seat. Absolutely fill every seat. That's why this makes sense. Because ordinary people, the one, not the top 1%, ordinary people can start to use this like a bus. That's what this is all about. You can now start linking communities. You can start letting people live where they want. If they can commute from Manchester to London in 40 minutes, they can work in London and live in Manchester. Do you understand the price difference of housing in Manchester to London? It's massive. So these are some of the reasons why we do what we're doing. And this is why when we first started back in 2014, we were talking about regional air transportation, which now everybody talks about regional air mobility, because it is so important. This is the one that we have to crack. And if we get it right, it's superb. Now, you hear a lot about net zero, all very exciting. Is it possible today? What can we do? Well, I've touched on it a little bit already. Energy density too low, high technology risk with the batteries at the moment. Despite what people say, um, there's a long way to go yet on some of that stuff. 
the big thing is the infrastructure spend. If you're to go to those 5,700 US airfields and you can say to them, we've got this wonderful new airplane, which is great, and it's going to do X, Y, and Z, but we need you to spend this to put in that infrastructure. I can tell you now, most of those airfield owners go, well, that's nice. Uh, thanks, but no. If you want that, you can bring the infrastructure and you can pay for it, but we're not touching that. That's a problem. That's a cost increase. Let's just talk about an all-electric airplane for a second. If you use a wing and tube design, you're going to have to now lift an awful lot of mass and weight because batteries obviously are heavy. They don't get lighter the further you fly, which means you're landing at the same weight you took off with. Well, that's a problem because now we've got an asset which means that with a wing and tube design, we've got to have more electric motors to pick this thing up and put it in the sky. That means more propellers. That's propeller maintenance. That means more mounting points. That means increased weight. You put that weight into the runway, that means more wear on your tires, more wear on your brake disc, more wear on your landing gear. These are cost increases, not cost decreases. So whenever you hear all the great stories about everything that's possible, you don't often hear some of the major, major challenges that come with it. They will get there, they will get solved, but right here, right now, there's an awful lot of, shall we say, wishful thinking being peddled by many. So, uh, basically, if you have a look at this, this is one of the other uh, concepts that the aircraft is going to be used for, is obviously 300 meters. Do you remember I said we're going to operate off 300 meters? Just so happens to be the same length of the deck of our new Queen Elizabeth aircraft carriers. I'm not going to say much more than that. But we started in 2014, design concept 2015, came through program growth 2018. 2022, we're hoping to complete the preliminary design optimization of the aircraft. So what that means is what you're seeing there is going to tweak and change somewhat. We hope to complete that within the next six months, and that will give us a definitive flight envelope then of what the aircraft will do. And we'll be able to share that with you and talk to you about that. Then we go into what we call prototype development, where we're going into two years of structural engineering. We will tear this thing apart and put as many type certified components that exist on the shelf today on the aircraft, tweak the design accordingly to make that fit. Landing gear, brakes, flap actuators, fuel tanks, etc. Once that's done, we freeze the blueprint ready for the prototype to begin its first flight testing. That's realistically now going to bump into 2025 and then two years of part 23 commuter category certification. So in-service operation somewhere around about 2027. That is the target and we are going to have to go some to do that. So whenever you hear anybody saying we're going to have full electric type certified operations by 2023, 24, if you hear anybody say that, or if you hear anybody say that we're using automotive battery technology in our car, in our aeroplane, take a very large pinch of salt with anything that they say. Um, obviously, I think it looks quite cool on the deck of the carrier. I think it looks a very, very good piece of kit. But again, um, with the current climate at the moment, it, it's, uh, it could be very, very useful in the future. We will have full autonomous flight capability. The systems being used for the aircraft are actually already flying in the US. Um, so the aircraft will be fully autonomous. So from an unmanned perspective, from a logistics perspective, it's a really interesting proposition. We are signatory to the uh, Prince Charles's uh, climate uh, Sustainable Market Initiative, I never get that one out, um, which was, came around from COP26. And as you can see, some of the partners that we have involved, the likes of Honeywell, Dunlop, um, the guys at Nova Systems, Cambridge Consultants, MagniX. MagniX obviously been flying an awful lot with their electric motors, and they're really pushing the boundaries. So we've got more partners coming in. They're going to be announced fairly soon. It's an exciting time. But yeah, it's, uh, it's been a roller coaster. It's been wild. So that's basically what it's all about. Uh, it's amazing to have come from a journey of being a youngster here in Weybridge with having an interest in aviation, seeing my father do his business, 
have my motorsport interest here and now come back here to celebrate with you guys on this 400 show. So it's a really nice circle. So I greatly appreciate it. And I'm happy to have any questions that you want. Most of it. Uh, I'll start, I'll start out. Um, when we were every, every, at the end of every year, we, the four of us, um, pick our favorite segments of that year. And for 2020, I can't believe it was 2020 that we had you on the show, but I think we had to fight for, uh, who had the Faraday segment as their favorite segment of 2020 because the passion that you bring to this and your company and your team bring to aviation is, is refreshing. And to have a CEO that is so passionate about aviation is so unique because I've worked in quite a few companies, especially since leaving the military, that the investor side, the management side, the corporate suite, is is so separated from the practical application and the operation side of the house and we all have always noted that that your passion for aviation is i i can only imagine the the corporate culture that you guys have up in duxford um and i'm sure anybody in here would would love to go work up there any day and, and one of the things that struck me from your interview in 2020 was how you were tackling conventional thinking when it came to pilot training and certification because none of the uh, traditional regulatory uh, things were written for this kind of aircraft. And I, that was one of the things that I've been wondering over the past couple of years. How has Faraday, how has your team advanced that? What, what uh, steps have you made in, in breaking that conventional thinking when it came to either training or certification? Well, I mean, this is part of the reason why we pick partners and you work with partners because you can't do it all yourself. Uh, any company that thinks it can do it all itself is going to die. Your, fuel, your burn rate will go off through the roof and you will collapse. Um, so having partners like MagniX working through with the FAA on what they're doing, so getting their special condition uh, so that they can actually understand and help them shape the regulations of how you operate, how you train, how you use this, huge huge for us. Um, that's why it's very important to select a partner like that. Then you look at the likes of Nova Systems. Nova, been there, done it. Type certifying, checking, going through that entire test and evaluation process. Getting them involved early is really important because if you've got a clean sheet design airplane and you're trying to talk to people about what it is that you want to do, get these experts involved in early because you could go down a whole cul-de-sac and design something, stick it on the ramp, and then they go, that looks lovely. The problem is that, 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 and that means that you need to go away now for three years and spend another 200 million. Well, that's idiotic. That's just dumb. So why not bring the guys in right now and say, look, we want you involved in this entire process as we go down and as part of that training as well. So we are digital twinning a lot of what we're going to be doing. So we will be flying missions with this aircraft long before the actual real aircraft flies. And that's a really important part of this thing, is we will take the data that we're doing with our design concept, get that verified, full flight fidelity model, do wind tunnel testing, and then we can stick that into the, the simulator and basically pre-plug that in and say, right, now fly it. See how this actually works, how it feels. What are some of the constraints? What are some of the issues around it? So all of that is just an ongoing process. It's frustrating that, that much of that should have happened already. We should have done this years ago. But because funding has been such a challenge, we can blow 58 million with the tier one primes on a project called eFanX that last year gets just blown out of the water saying, oh, sorry, that didn't work. Really? 
what, bolting an electric motor to the wing of a 146 with a cabin full of batteries and generators, you've suddenly discovered that that might not work <laughs> as a sensible idea. Well, that's taxpayers' money you just plowed into that, and you've delivered nothing. We've got an electric world speed record airplane at 8 million that basically has flown slower than a Spitfire. Great. Fantastic. What has it actually delivered the taxpayer? Nothing. That's the problem. So we, again, we're, we're a real champion on the fact that the way that we do innovation funding in this country has got to change. Americans have got this. They go, you know what, we'll back 20 projects. 18 of them will fail. We accept that. Two of them are going to hit big. Those two will pay for everything else. That is the difference. And if you start a company with people who've got commercial aerospace experience, who actually understand the market, they, they understand why they're doing it, and the things that you've got to solve in order to make it successful, why aren't you going to have a chance of success at that? Yet you can take guys who come off Wall Street two years into the sector, don't know anything, here's a whole ton of hundreds of millions, and you're going to create an EV toll that's going to fly 10,000 modules around through the... All right, we'll see how that pans out. Um, I know that this is a sensible platform. It's a sensible approach. Regional air mobility, the movement of people and cargo is a sensible idea. Uh, we've got the technologies now, we just need to make it work. So it'll be an interesting few years ahead of us. Um, we've got some um, questions, I think. Uh, Matt's got a question. Oh, sorry. Matt's our rumor. He's the <coughs> mic man. Micah. <laughs> um, as most of you know here, the whole sustainable... I don't know if you were here at the beginning when we talked about the uh, hydrogen in the A380 that they're going to be testing, and I don't know if you were here and heard me comment on that. As most of you know, uh, I find all the sustainable fuel uh, air aviation stuff a bunch of bunk. I've been following it for, uh, for years. I've written pieces about it. Um, and, uh, and it all seems to be a bunch of garbage. You're the first presentation, the second time I've seen you speak, that makes any sense and is workable and is quite possible and might really happen that I believe in. And I just wanted to say thank you for being sensible because there is so much ridiculousness and silliness out there from people that don't understand Newton's first law of there is no free lunch. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, I hope we can talk a little bit later. Absolutely, be delighted to. No, the hydrogen thing's an interesting one. Um, if you use green hydrogen, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. If you can have green hydrogen, that's fantastic. Green hydrogen is prohibitively expensive to produce for mass transport. Unless we suddenly come up with a brand new way of creating hydrogen that is significantly cheaper, it's a non-starter. Which means that what we're using is blue, which used to be known as grey hydrogen. Anybody see the problem with that? If you're creating fossil fuel energy to create a fuel, you then stick out the tailpipe going, look how clean this is. Yeah, but how did you create it? Ah, we're not mm -hmm. talking about that. Well, then it's not clean, is it? And then you go to the extreme of saying, we're going to demonstrate a hydrogen engine and we're going to stick it on an aircraft that's got four walking great jet A powered engines. The, not really the most sustainable platform. I remember when the uh, Honeywell 757 they used to bolt things on and another thing. There are other aircraft you might have used, really, an A380. But yeah, because why? You've got two decks there. You can fill one deck with hydrogen tanks and everything else. I mean, we've seen here in the UK, there was supposedly the first commercial-grade hydrogen flight. Mm, really? Don't think that quite happened. And that's been found out by a journalist because actually it wasn't the first commercial-grade hydrogen flight because the system didn't work. 
They bought in a 100 kilowatt fuel cell from Sweden. That meant that they were 150 kilowatts light of power to fly that airplane. So it actually flew on predominantly battery power. And yet the world and the government is saying, look at this wonderful hydrogen flight. Well, I'm sorry, but that's incorrect. That's not what happened. And then when they did try and fly it, they had what they called an off-field landing. Except that off-field landing went through a ditch, ripped the wing off, ripped the tailplane off, and broke the airplane in two, writing off their second airframe. Uh, two months, three months later, they turn around and go, we have successfully completed our 250 kilowatt flight <laughs> test system. And our, our demonstration, we're now going to build a 19-seat airplane with this power pack. At what point do people start going, hang on, you binned your aircraft through a hedge, and it is now subject of an AA by AAIB crash investigation report. It says engine failure as the title. That prohibits you from putting out a press release several months later saying we successfully completed our flight test program. And yet it goes on. What do we do? We then give them another 12 million. So yeah, fantastic. Well done. Crack on. <laughs> it's bizarre. So I don't get it. But the problem is oil and gas industry is hugely powerful. A lot of this is being pushed from that. Um, technology will improve. Of that, there is no doubt. Um, anybody who says that it won't doesn't understand how technology leaps. Just seeing what we've seen in automotive on battery technology, it will come. There are new types of batteries being produced all the time now, and we're looking at some really interesting tech which will solve the thermal management issue of batteries. Um, but it's got a way to go. But it will get there. But what we've got to be is sensible, and that's what we've based our business model on. Also makes a lot of money as well. It's economically sensible as well. Yeah, Neil, I loved the chat. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I've got lots of questions, but uh, just one perhaps. Uh, your three-wing design, was that to create a, uh, a form of high aspect ratio that would be impractical if you use one wing, or is there some clever aerodynamic trick you've worked out for your triple wing? Yeah, I mean, basically the idea was because the aircraft isn't just being designed as a passenger aircraft, so this aircraft has always, it's come from UAV heritage, so it's come from a military background. The plan was always it would have a multi-use life. So in a multi-use environment, if, say, you wanted to land the aircraft on an autobahn or a, a road to supply people or go into some dirt strip area where there may be a restricted area, if you had a great big long wing to give you the same lift profile, it may not be convenient. Um, so having a real compact footprint was a real driving factor for us. So how did we create as much lift as possible in as tight a footprint as possible? Now, some people say, well, what about the whole drag profile and why, why are you so worried about lift and everything? We knew that if you're going to go ducted fan to keep something quiet, you've got up to about 220 knots before that ducted fan starts acting like a giant parachute. Up to that point, it's more thrust efficient than an open prop. Beyond 220 knots, you need to use an open prop. Otherwise, you're just dragging a parachute. So we knew that speed, it was never going to be the fastest thing in the world. We knew that in order to keep cost down to meet our cost objective, this would be an unpressurized aircraft. We knew there was no point going up into the main commercial airspace. So staying in the local GA airspace meant that we've now got up to sort of 14,000. So it was really up and down. Most, mo most missions will be probably two hours max. Um, probably most will be an hour or just under an hour. So the ability for the aircraft to do that up and down meant that if we had this huge lift profile, we want to get this thing off the ground quickly. If we're using any form of battery, if we're doing any form of, of uh, thrust, we need as little to keep it in the air as possible. So if it's got this massive lift profile, it doesn't require that much thrusting to put it through the air. 
but then you think about how do we get it in the air. Now you think about how an aircraft works, it's a lump of lead or metal sitting there and you're going to shove it down the runway until it gets to a speed that it creates enough lift that it jumps off the ground. Now combine your electric motors with instantaneous torque. Now understand that our landing gear will have motors in, so it will be propelled in the landing gear. And if you've ever driven a Tesla, 15 years ago, if you said to somebody that a four-door saloon would out-accelerate a Lamborghini, you'd be laughed out the room. <laughs> have you sat in a Tesla four-door saloon at the moment? It's like, holy God. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a motorsport guy. I've rallied for many years. And I think these things are quick. Um, so from that perspective, when you combine that ability to get something moving really quickly with a high lift profile, it means you jump off the ground really quickly. If you can carry more weight than the existing assets, that means that we can carry some extra batteries and do the same mission profile as an existing asset, but do more. And what it gives you is flexibility. It means that if I want to carry an asset that has got all fuel on board, so we pack the fuselage with fuel, we pack the wings with fuel, and I just put a camera on it and I leave it up there for over 24 hours loitering. That's an option. So basically the design was one that we knew could tick a lot of boxes from a lot of areas. And I'm not an aircraft design engineer. That's why I hand it to people and say, does that make sense? I've seen it sort of worked on 30 years ago as a principle. Can we do something with that? And they said, yes. So that's why we're there. Finally, um, you portrayed as possibly being used as a as competition for trains and the like, but for that you're going to have to land in all weathers. So uh, the sort of airfields you're looking to operate from don't have Cat 3 ILSs. What is your plan there? Basically, that is one of the core challenge areas. Uh, in order for us to grow this network in terms of the ability for the aircraft to operate, how we operate into those airfields is going to be something that has to be discussed with the authorities. It's a case of either we're going to put in more infrastructure around all these airfields to enable these things to happen, we go back to the electrical argument then, which is you're spending a bunch of infrastructure to make this happen, or do you give the aircraft itself enough systems capability that it can land in all these remote locations with clearance to do so, and we're using the very latest state-of-the-art flight avionics out of Honeywell. Um, so that is one of our core challenge areas. Obviously, initially, you'll be operating out of the larger GA airfields, places like Oxford or Staverton or things like that, so real comprehensive airfields. But when you start getting to the really remote stuff, that may be a little bit further down the line, but we'll get there. No. Yes. Here we go. Uh, thank you. Fascinating project. Uh, really interesting. And clearly you, you passionately believe it's, uh, it's workable. Uh, I'm curious as to who else uh, believes in it as much as you do. Are you able to share with us who is uh, you know, financially backing this? What sort of people are investing in this? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, however, um, there is news coming very soon. Uh, we, we've been working on something for months now. Uh, in fact, over the last year, pulling our first round of major funding in to complete the design op. That's, mm -hmm. that's days away from signature completion. Um, they're what, sorry? They're not uh, They're definitely not. <laughs> no, no. And I tell you, whilst we joke about it, it is something that is really difficult to do because if you are operating in an environment where funding is really difficult to get, and then you get this group come and say, we're interested in funding you. And maybe that money comes from China, or maybe it comes from Russia, or maybe it comes from somewhere else. 
when you're talking about working with the armed forces, like the RAF, etc., then instantly that funding source, not possible. So your, your filter gets even narrower as to what you can get funding from. It's a real problem. But it's, it's there to be almost just completed. Once it's done, that's the snowball that starts rolling. We're already talking with institutional investors about our next round. They can only invest in certain packet sizes, so they can't do seed stuff or low-level stuff. But once you start getting sort of 10 to 30, 50 million, that's when they step in. So we currently have got a long list of people who are ready to come in at that point. They need us to prove the design concept, get that work done, demonstrate the exact flight envelope capability of the aircraft, and then they're prepared to do the next bit. So we're gonna, we've got time to just squeeze in a couple more questions if that's okay. So um, hands up, anybody who's got any last questions they'd like to? Okay, hang on, Matt. It's on. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Kind of touched on it, but I was I was curious to know uh, what sort of um, pain you felt from lobbyists, like anti your project lobbyists. Uh, certain lobbyists have tried to kill this project for the last five years. And uh, one question, which is a bit more simple: How many seats were you looking at? Eighteen. Well, I mean, it could be a nineteen-seat aeroplane. The commuter category is up to the nineteen-seat mm-hmm. size, so we say eighteen because it's six, six, and six palletized. So you can do three LD3 containers or those pallets. You could make it a 19-seater if you just want to make it a pure PAX aircraft. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the size. But it is a challenge um, because when you encounter civil servants who don't have a single day's worth of aerospace experience between them, they will go to the de facto decision-making process of, if I make no decision, it cannot be the wrong decision, number one. That's a win. (laughs) If I have to make a decision, I'll give it to a 50 billion market cap company because how can they be wrong? They must know their industry. Or I could give the money to this innovative startup where it's much riskier. There's a higher risk profile here. It's a smaller company. They're doing something very big and bold and innovative. But if that fails, my neck and my name is on this piece of paper. So I tell you, why don't we get rid of that option? Let's go back to option one and two. That's the real challenge that you have. and yeah, it, it is a problem here. We, we basically, we live in a world now where lobbyists have got far too much power, where they can come in and say, we're going to do this, we do that. Why? Well, because we've got 9,000 jobs here that we're going to just stick on the table, that if you don't give us this money, we're going to sack them. Well, well we, can't keep, we can't afford to keep them. They don't actually say they'll sack them. But it's basically, you know exactly what it is. It's give me this money or this. That's a problem. That isn't right. And what we should be doing, and what the American big primes do much better, is they support their startup infrastructure. Why? Because they're sensible. They realize the fact that a startup company can do something for a fraction of the price that they can't possibly do because their infrastructure is too big. So we'll back you a little bit of coin. You go away and do that work. If that looks good, we're going to just take a chunk of you for a fraction of the price that we could have done that ourselves. That's sensible economics. Yet here we seem to have an attitude of oh but we've been doing this for years chaps and we're the top of the uh, tree here in aerospace (laughs) and um, we'd far rather throw 50 million at this project to decide something that um, you could probably do for five Mm. okay don't understand it (laughs) hiya Um, I'm not sure how far your remit goes in terms of the manufacturing side but in terms of pilot training 
Where do you see yourself sitting in? Armando was talking a couple of weeks ago on an episode about how in America you've got the regional stuff and then you graduate on upwards. Do you see a similar thing here of, let's say, the newly trained pilots as you start off regional, then graduate up? Or is it literally just a bolt on to the side of the normal commercial as it is at the moment? I mean, obviously, it, w it will be fitting the normal commercial training profile. But I mean, from an operational perspective, I can see something that's just logical to me, which is if we can be certified for single pilot operation, which is what we're planning to do, then you can imagine your training pilot sitting in the other seat and basically seeing a real-time live training op as the aircraft's being used. And granted, they may have to open the door for people and make sure everybody gets into their seats <laughs> properly. <laughs> that might upset a few pilots. But the principle is they're getting on-job training in addition to their main flight training. So they can actually see on the exact real-time basis. And I think that's great. I mean, I think that there's a real opportunity there for you're going to be getting their wings flying much quicker, you're going to get their experience of these operations going much quicker. They're going to be at the tip of the spear for all these sustainable technologies, these new pilots coming in, because they're going to get to understand how you operate them to the best way, etc. And so from that perspective, yeah, I mean, it just makes a ton of sense. We are looking and working with a bunch of training agencies that are looking at this exact subject right now. Of Because it's, it's an interesting one, because if you've learned to fly on a basic airplane with piston engine, etc., you get to learn the manual as it's written standard. Now you get an airplane where you push a button and it goes, wee, <laughs> and that, that's it. I mean, it's like, okay, that's not quite how normal aircraft works. So you've got, you can learn the basics of how to fly on maybe an electric airplane, but in everything you're gonna to need to learn from a commercial aircraft perspective, Mm, we may not quite have all those features on board the airplane because it's so simple. I mean, it's literally one moving part, there's the stick, and off you go. They've, um, they've been saying that for, for years with the Airbus, though, isn't it? Don't you just press a button and it takes <laughs> off? <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, in all honesty, it's an evolving sphere right now. Um, I think that an awful lot of this stuff is going to help shape what we do for the future, and we're, we're excited to be part of this. I mean, it's just part and parcel of it. Hi, Neil. Uh, thanks uh, very much. Really enjoyed that presentation. Uh, fundamentally, how do you think you're going to sell this to the general public and give them confidence? Do you think price is enough? I mean, I know where I work, and there's seasoned travelers that fly all around the world, but still elect not to get on a regional turboprop, and they're seasoned travelers. So do you think the confidence is a big hurdle to overcome? That's exactly why I didn't want it to look like a prop. Mm -hmm. It looks like a jet. And when we're finished with it, it'll look even more like a jet. Um, most people will look at this like a jet. It will look modern. We will be able to demonstrate to them for a long period of time how and why this thing works. They will be able to experience the fact that if they live anywhere near it, they don't hear it, so they won't get upset about people using it. Uh, that's the biggest thing. You hear all the complaints about helicopters in private flight over somewhere like London. It's outrageous, the noise is disgusting. I guarantee you if those people had the money and they had their own helicopter, they'd be using it. <laughs> And that's the problem. Envy is a real determining factor as to whether somebody objects to something or not. The actual flight experience is going to be something else. That we're going to have to prove that you can get on this thing. And the fact that everything that makes the pushing is way back there, it's actually going to be a lovely environment to be on board. You're not going to have these engines sitting here whirling away next to you. So once we start demonstrating the aircraft flying and people experience that, and we're going to invite people, obviously, at some point once we have the clearance to do so, to come and experience the aircraft, then yeah, price is the driver, price is king, because everybody will spend 10 quid on a sample fare, 
to go and do something and they'll go, actually, you know what, this is quite, this is quite comfy. Mm. This is quite convenient. So, Absolutely. yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, we could talk to Neil and ask him questions <laughs> mm-hmm. all afternoon, uh, but you can do that uh, later on Absolutely. Uh, over at the Brooklands Hotel, uh, over a glass of wine or beer or something like that. So uh, I'd just like to thank Neil very much indeed for his presentation today. Thank you, guys. Okay. okay then right that's where we are going to wrap up episode 400 of the Plane Talking UK podcast big thanks to everyone who has joined us here at the Brooklands Aviation Museum uh, today and uh, for bearing with the chilly conditions in here today mm. uh, and also big thanks to everyone who's joined us on the YouTube live stream as well uh, this afternoon for the show big thanks to you all as well for joining us so that's it, guys and girls. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for watching and thanks for being here. From me, Carlos, here. From Nev, Matt, Armando. Thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us today. And um, take care. And all the very best. And we'll see you all again soon. Take Bye, care, everyone. everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.